This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, welcome to episode 60 of In Class with Dr. Gray Carr. That's Dr. Gray Carr. I'm Karen Hunter. Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, all over the globe, the largest Africana study classroom in the world. And let me say thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the master teacher as well. Love you. Good morning, afternoon. Good morning. Thank you for my beautiful shirt. You are your ancestors. Look at that. You know, it's so funny. I normally don't use that first person singular, but I am my ancestors. You are your ancestors. We are our ancestors. I was thinking about that today. Those of you who are in the sciences know much better than I do that when a female comes into the world, I won't say woman, that's a gender, but a female, biological female comes to the world. She's already got all of the human beings that she will give birth to. So you come to the planet literally carrying everybody who's going to come after you. So this is this phrase. I heard it a lot. But one brother who really does a very good spiritual deep dive on this is uh, our friend and brother, Baba James Small. there in the New York area out of South Carolina, which we'll be talking about a lot today. And he constantly reminds us we didn't make ourselves. So we are literally our ancestors. And we, we should think about that in terms of our obligation, because everybody who came before us, we're looking at them when we look mm-hmm. at each other. So oh, happy May the 1st. It's May, yeah, the May 1st yeah. day. It is uh, Kentucky Derby Day. And let me just pause on the I am for a second, because I am. Yeah, I am uh, is the name of God. Right. And uh, Dick, ah. Gregory, Dick Gregory, Baba Dick Gregory actually uh Caution me, you know, whatever comes after when you say I am, you are attributing that to God. And I have uh, that has sat with me for the last eight years and rest his soul. But every time I say I am, you know, I'm tired. Nope. I, I'm, I'm weak. Nope. You know, I am when God, when Moses said, who should I say sent me? I am. So that I am is so powerful to me. So that is a word I shave from our from our Baba, Dick Gregory. That is exactly. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, wow, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, had, I hadn't thought about that. Um, and somebody can check. And this is the other thing. As we're having these conversations, the beautiful thing about it is, yeah, I go back and look at the, the YouTube comments. But as people are in the chats and talking, somebody will look this up. I think the number was seventeen uh, of the first uh, winners of the Kentucky Derby were black, because you know, black folk trained and rode the horses. We know that. Um, I was thinking about International Workers Day, which dates back to the 1880s, like 1889. We call it May Day now. You, you people organizing, saying this is for the working class folk. And also, I was reading today's New York Times. It's interesting on the business page. Apparently, for all of our fam who are watching in uh, Great Britain, in England, we know y'all are there. We know we're all here together. Today is, I think, what do they call it? Black Pound Day. Oh, yeah. The verse, the first Saturday of every month is a day when folk in England are encouraged to support black businesses. This came in the wake of the general strike of last summer. And there's a long article, apparently a brother, uh, the rapper Swiss uh, created it, Black Pound Day, but they got some real good uh, profiles. There's a bookstore over there that they talk about, Roundtable Books. There's a sister who grew her fashion line, Natalie uh, Manima. Uh, she here she is right here. See, there she is. She said, I'm making autumn oh, black pound marking the calendar for black economic progress. So happy black pound day if you're in the UK. Go spend that money with black people. And if you're in Nairobi, I think it's Labor Day. Yeah. yeah, even though they're going through some 
some some situations, but uh, you know. Well, you know, Africans aren't uh, continental Africans aren't like uh, us in the United States. If you try to steal an election or extend your term in office in Africa, they come into the streets. That's what's going on in Somalia right now with the cat Muhammad. Uh, they just had uh, the, the the guy in Chad who had been there forever, uh, who was a military guy who loved to go out and, and shoot at people. Well, he got shot at and killed. And so now Chad is in a moment where they got some challenges. Of course, we know what's going on in Ethiopia or we should know what's going on in Ethiopia right now with Abi, uh, the, the, the president of, of, of Ethiopia. But see, the thing about it is you try to steal an election in many places in the world, the people are going to show up. Not like the hillbilly horde, the children of John C. Calhoun, who we're going to talk about today. Shout out to Tim Scott. But Africans take voting very seriously. So we, we just going to pray our folk over and stay in conversation with them in Kenya, in the Chad, in Somalia, in Ethiopia, all over the continent, really, uh, as we struggle toward building better societies, because that's what we want. I mean, and this is a great entry point because we're going to talk about the need for history as people are, uh, you know, talking about 1619 and and how we shouldn't use that as an entry point to American history. And and all of this conversation about, you know, racism and is America a racist country and all of this stuff. (laughs) Other people, people, you know, because, you know, I I started reading this book on, on my on my break. Uh, I don't know if you can see it. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm just a little ways in, Dr. Carr, and I'm already like we have to fight this indoctrination because it has been a constant drumbeat and it has been very willful. And, and even our school systems uh, throughout this country, very complicit, yes. the books that we send to our children. So this Saturday class in narrative as an extension, let me say thank you to all of the uh, folk uh, who are in narrative, who are participating in this, because to me, you know, when we first started, it was about freeing people. It was about, you know, foundationally laying the groundwork for our history that we can build on. Yeah. But it has turned into so much more. And uh, and if you want to donate a class uh, a subscription, we now have that available. And thank you to Michael Harriet because he's like, I want to donate a bunch of classes. Oh. Uh, so how do I do that? And I was like, I didn't think about it. OK, let's you know, right. so collectively we are building this pyramid together and everybody's bringing a break. So thank you. Yes, yes, yes. It's interesting. We were talking and, of course, uh, we we. uh we didn't go live last week and some, this is something for everyone. We're all teachers and learners. We never stop learning and we never stop teaching in many ways. Human beings do that. We're learning organisms. So, but for those who are tasked, honored, uh, assigned to take up the role of formal teaching and learning, we know that it's important to reflect. We're in constant reflection mode. All teachers need that. And what we're doing here uh, has grown exponentially, of course, coming in as, as the general strike occurred last summer, spring and summer, and then extending now to to our 60 of time together in this format. It was good to spend some time sitting and reflecting. And in that two week interval, uh, we, of course, have seen the world continue. That's what the world does. And so today thinking about the anchors, what makes this conversation distinct, not necessarily different, 
than all the other conversations, because now with technology, everybody's talking all the time. You can find and see anything you want. And of course, the invisible hand, the algorithms tend to guide, which is why we're always encouraging folk to not only meet us here, but then invite others. And then as we uh, are building and shaping the narrative uh, side, really, that's where we get into the hard work, the difficult work, the necessary work, the joyful work. But in, in, in these Saturday points of entry, sitting thinking, what makes this conversation distinct? It, it, it should be obvious, but, you know, thinking about it and say, you know, we should probably try to continue to uh, continue to communicate the need for asking better questions, because that's really what curriculum does in any formal education system. A, a, a curriculum is designed, whether it's good, bad or in the between, it's designed to have students learn by asking solid questions, good questions, more questions, better questions. And then as those questions emerge, uh, being the students should be fed with content, with information, with experience. And the teacher serves part guide, part, um, part kind of shore of the way, part repository. So that what ends up happening often now that we're in a society, uh, the American society, that really doesn't value teachers and people could say, yes, we do. And that's, and that's clearly not true. Uh, you can't have a society without teachers. So that's 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 like a threshold minimum thing. But how you uh, incorporate teachers into the formal structure of a society says a lot about what your society is about and then what those teachers are capable of have been developed to do, because we all have a basic intelligence. So if you're a teacher. Uh, Asa here used to always say this, and if you want to, I mean, there's so much Asa wrote and spoke about more speaking than writing, and he wrote a lot. Um, if you get the little book, Young, Gifted, and Black, uh, edited by Teresa Perry, uh, Asa Hilliard, and Claude Steele, in Asa's chapter, No Mystery, he's they say, Well, how can we educate these black kids? It's not a mystery. We know that we've talked about that a lot. He says, You know, a teacher should have content mastery, so they should know their subject matter, and they should always be acquiring more uh, content mastery. And then they should have the capacity to help communicate to students and interact with students and learn alongside students, even as they are expected to know more than students, continuing to learn in ways that communicate better, ask ways to ask better questions, way to, ways to guide thinking, guide uh, inquiry. So that having been said in this space, this, this in-class space, you know, we've talked a lot about, and it really anchors what we do because we, we, you know, this is the largest Africana studies class in the world. It convenes regularly and it's like thousands of people. And so there's so much out there. People are always saying, well, what books to read? What places to go? How do we look for this? What? It's the how. How do we approach a topic? How do we ask better questions? And then where do we search for answers for those questions? And we know that that is shaped by our uh, curriculum. The curriculum that... Uh, we developed in Philadelphia in close collaboration with teenagers uh, in the Philadelphia Freedom Schools. Shout out to all my people in Philly Freedom Schools in my, my heart. And then continued to work with educators uh, and in, in 2005, six and seven developed uh, what became the curriculum framework for the mandatory African-American high school history course in Philadelphia public schools, high schools. Uh, but more than that became an opportunity to finally sit down and e shape a framework based on decades of studying, decades of work in what we call Africana studies, 
in a formal sense coming out of the 1960s, but then extending as far back as we could go and bringing all that, as I say, momentum of memory into a, a format that everyone can enter and begin to answer and ask and answer better questions. So today we're just gonna spend a little bit of time applying that framework to some things that have emerged over the last couple of weeks since we've been together live. And of course, the point of entry for that uh, will be, of course, uh, the conversation that was held uh, Wednesday here in the United States uh, following what was an, was effectively a, a really a State of the Union speech, so to speak, from the President of the United States, Joe Biden, and then a response from the Senator from North Charleston, South Carolina, Tim Scott, who's been getting beat up. We're calling him Uncle Tim and Uncle Tom. But we're going to talk about all that today because, you know, as you remember, our Africana Studies framework has six very basic categories. And each of these categories asks us to ask some basic questions and then apply the search for answers to those questions to how we're thinking about Africana. Because this is an Africana. This is an African-American history. This is an African history. I mean, all that stuff comes in and, you know, people talk about interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. No. This is all within mind toward a kind of discipline framework, a discipline framework. So we're not going to go through all those categories. Y'all can go back. Please go to narrative, you know, where you can really get deeper into the categories. But I'm just going to mention the first two, because as you all remember, if you've looked at our conversations we've had, um, these are the two categories that emerged after one long summer we spent after the School District of Philadelphia decided they were going to make this course mandatory after 40 years of struggle. Shout out to Dana King and all the folks, particularly Dana, who led that team. And we'd sit around, you know, these are scholars, these are teachers, teacher scholars, you know, young people. And every time we come up with a discussion, I would be workshopping it in the summer with my Philadelphia Freedom School students. So I'd be with the students and we throw an idea out. We're always reading. We're always discussing. And so what emerged is something very basic. We had to create a way for people to think about who African people are in the world to each other. So we've heard, you know, all skin folk ain't kin folk and all kind of clever aphorisms, you know, we heard that last week applied to, to Tim Scott. You know, what holds us together besides skin color? Is that the only thing that holds us together? Are there cultural similarities, even as there are cultural differences? So the first, so the first question we wanted to ask is, who are we to each other? But in order to ask that question, we had to turn down the volume on all these other interests that are always trying to uh, have conversation with, interfere with, impose themselves on, help, ally with African people. And so the, the, six, cultural, the six categories we have in, in our inquiry, the first category we named was actually the second category in terms of importance. And this is going to be very important in about, you know, two, about 60 seconds when I, you know, dial this in to Biden and 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 and, and uh, Biden and Scott, then Harris, then Biden on this whether America's racist size kind of thing. Right. The second category that we line up in our curriculum is the governance structure category. We take that phrase from Jacob Carruthers, who wrote a lot about this question. Very important figure who we've talked about again. Y'all can go look at that. Jack Crothers, you know, talks about governance. He talks about governance in classical Africa, medieval Africa, then follows how we relate to each other, how we govern ourselves in community. So the question in the governance category is who are African people to each other? 
So in a sense, who is Tim Scott to us? Who is us? Well, who us is depends on how you're defining us. And then we get into the rich questions. We start asking, what does us mean? Is it demographic? Is it politics? You know, when somebody says all skin folk ain't kin folk, it's really a, a way of a shorthand of saying, you know, demography isn't politics. That's really what's being said. And in that way, it kind of resonates with the black consciousness movement in South Africa, for example. Uh, Bantu Stephen Biko and before Bantu Stephen Biko, you know, uh, um, Robert Sabukwe um, or uh, even Anton Lombetti. You go back to the 1940s and 50s. So there's a politics that kind of forms around blackness, uh, can form around blackness that's distinct from phenotype, distinct from, uh, you know, just having black people around. Go ahead, Prof. Jump in. This, this is so important because, you know, uh, I'm going to do an experiment next week on my radio show. Oh, by the way, thank you. Oh. Did y'all see that? Y'all check that narrative joint out. Y'all got it. Get your hot narrative joint. Yeah. Narrative. That that should be the status symbol, not a not a sneaker. Uh, anyway, someone, someone posted that on Twitter. I'm not. I'm no, not. Yeah, I'm not that's a lot cheaper too, and yeah. functional. Can't drink that's out of sneaker. Anyway, go ahead. Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm gonna do an experiment because a lot of what we do is knee jerk, not rooted in any understanding. So I just want to say thank you again because. This is the conversation that I didn't know we needed. Mm. And, you know, we've been having this conversation since the pandemic. But now it's like, you know, everything is to trigger us to react emotionally to something. So, of course, it's racist. And then we spend, you know, three hours on Twitter showing how racist America is. But we still are in the same situation we were three hours before. So nothing has changed. Tim Scott saying it's not racist. Kamala Harris, uh, vice president, excuse me, Harris. Repeating it uh, doesn't change our condition. So I want us to more focus on how we get free. And so, so go ahead, Dr. Carr. I just wanted to jump in. So, because a lot of folk wanted to hear what you had to say, because they know you can undress Tim Scott because you have all of the words and you can do it masterfully. No words. Words are words are, and and I and I and I confess, uh, Professor uh, Professor Hunter, I confess to. Uh, having that same emotional reaction. When I see a man who could be shot in the streets just as easily as you could be shot in the streets or myself, when I see a man very carefully choosing his words, attempting to assuage white fear, which I think he does understand. And I, and, and I spent an hour, it didn't take much more than an hour, reading the book Tim Scott wrote with uh, Trey Gowdy. Uh, who I sometimes refer to as Confederate Gumby, but that's the story for another day. Um, the haircut, just I couldn't resist. Again, the emotion kind of pulled. But I mean, I don't care anything about Trey Benghazi Gowdy. But and I remember you saying you read it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because I, I don't want to be uninformed. And so what Tim Scott uh, said Thursday night, if you if you've read anything Tim Scott has uh, said, if you go back over his career. Uh, coming out of North Charleston, has two siblings in the military. You know, father left. I think he's around seven years old when 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 the family kind of reconfigured. Uh, again, a, f- a strong father figure in the sense of the grandfather, who, as far as I'm concerned, he threw under the bus. He said, oh, "My granddaddy was read the paper every day, and then I realized later he couldn't read, but he was making an example for me." Yeah, yeah. When you said that, as if that was a deficit. And then went around and talked about a Georgia voting bill that you clearly either haven't read or you're standing up with a bold faced lie, which is fine because you're a politician. You know, you not only 
attacked your uh you aren't your ancestors in it well you are your ancestors the question is what are you going to be with your ancestors commingled because you not only dumped on him you dumped on every black person who did that exact same thing for the next generation because they understood the value of children seeing that you even you jumped on ben carson's mother who made them write book reports and they didn't find out till later that she couldn't read you jumped on oliver jones the brother who owned that parlor where car g woodson read those brothers the newspaper after they got off their ship and them i know you didn't want and mean to do that because you are not thinking constantly that you are your ancestors you thinking you are tim scott and you're gonna make this move but if you've listened to scott then you know that much of what he said with regard to race the other night is his old stump speech when he ran for city council when he got defeated when he ran in the district uh one time and then came back when he nailed the ten commandments to the wall when he was on charles city council he voted to get the ten commandments i mean this this is his stick and it's a distraction but also understand that in that process, we have to remember that it isn't what he's saying first, it's how we think about it. So if we're in the governance structure category, and by the way, I'll pause here for those of you who may, may not have heard this before, as I said, there are six, the first two shape the other ones. So I'm gonna go back to the first category listed but I'm starting with the governance category because that's the most important one. This is what Professor Hunter is what you're saying. How do it free us? Uh-huh. How do it free us? In the words of Sonia Sanchez from her play in the late 60s. Uh-huh. How do it free us? Us is the question we have to ask if we're talking about Africana studies. Now, if we're not talking about Africana studies, that's fine. And there is a distinction to be made. I won't get down this, but a lot of people say I'm doing black studies. No. Daudi Azibo and others would say you're doing the study of blacks. That would fit in the other category. But anyway, black studies. Africana studies, asking who we are to each other, does not start with pleading for our humanity or creating artificial relationships to try to make us palpable to somebody or any other group or the, or the world, generally speaking. So, and then I'll just do this very quickly. Those other four categories. Out of the governance structure category, who are Africans to each other? The other categories relate to the governance structure category. So the next category of, is ways of knowing. How have African people in whatever moment we're studying in time and space thought about reality, thought about the world, thought about human social relations, thought about every everything you can imagine, ways of knowing. We're not gonna use word like epistemology or axiology, what are the values? What are, how do we know what we know? No, all that, see, that was the thing. We gotta set all that aside and put it in language that is accessible so we can all have this conversation, ways of knowing. The next category, very quickly, is something called science and technology. How have African people acted upon the world in order to interact with the natural environment? So whether it through inventions or adapting things that have been created, how have Africans, so in other words, you take all the musical instruments out of the school system, these Negroes started taking records and making music out of records that have already been recorded. That's a that's ways of knowing applied to a form of science and technology. So, you know, all that kind of thing. The next category very quickly is the category of movement and memory. That's very important. The, and the category after that is cultural meaning making. I'm naming them together because I want to make sure everybody understands the distinction. Movement and memory is kind of a lot of what we do here and do in narrative, which is, in other words, as we move through time and space, how have African people passed on knowledge, experiences, memories of their moment in time and space, which is cultural meaning making, on to next generations? There's the distinction. So in every given moment in time and space, 
People create songs, music, dance, they write, they paint, they do whatever they do in terms of culture. They create cultural text. That is the last category, cultural meaning making. So right now, um, what's the uh, what's this thing that DJ Khaled just dropped? I watched it with Nas and Jay-Z. What's the name of it, uh, Karen? I don't know. I mean, I, I sent it to you, but you know, I don't have your memory. No, no, somebody, somebody's gonna help us in a minute. Yeah. Gonna help us yeah. they, did a, they did a song, and Nas has a bunch of bars about Coinbase, uh, coins, Bitcoin. Yeah, like apparently that drives Bill Maher crazy, as if money isn't anything other than an artificial place market for value. I think he misses the inter the distinction without a difference between Bitcoin and dollars, since none of us seem to be carrying around paper money. I mean, poor, poor Bill. I understand, Bill. Ooh, yeah. uh, I mean, but that's right. No, but this is why it's so important, and I'm and I'm like I want to praise Nas and Jay Z for for uplifting you know uh, the conversation because you know 20 years ago they were rapping about you know selling nickel bags and stuff, and now they're rapping about their investments in in technology companies and 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 uh, you know in the blockchain and Bitcoin, and I appreciate that conversation because you know Nas said we need more of us in this space, and we do. I had a really brilliant conversation with a man that's going to be joining us in narrative named Rick Willard about fiat and the history of, of you know, the, you know, the, the shared agreement that this dollar is valuable. It's only right. valuable because we agree. There's actually no value to our dollar. Right. Except over coerced, over coerced into agreement. That's right. And, and as soon as we start to find other ways, you know, first, yeah. you know, the, the, the banks were like Bitcoin's trash and now everybody's now they're all in Bitcoin and How now all? in cryptocurrency, all of them. And and, and, and watch Bill Maher be in it too. But anyway, go ahead. He probably already is. No can question. We not, can we not evoke his name? Yeah, I, I just wanted because somebody probably saw that and probably said, Yeah, that's the only reason. That's the only reason I said it. That's right. That's right. All right. All right. Oh, how could I how could I say that? In fact, let me apologize to you and while balancing it by remembering the name of the thing. Sorry, not sorry. That's the sorry, one. Not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not I sorry. Would. I knew you would. All right, go ahead. No, 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 no. But we should we should pause there because this is actually a good way to tease out those last two categories. The, the challenge that we were having in our conversations as educators trying to build this curriculum framework and then my conversation listening to and testing this stuff out with teenagers in Philadelphia and then bringing it on the train with me. Uh, I was on a train a couple of times. Joe Biden was on the train, but I, I rode the train every day from Philly. Of course, it stops in Wilmington. Hey, you know, that's one of the reasons Wilmington got set up very lovely. Delaware got set up with that Amtrak headquarters. But at any rate, uh, and, and by the way, $80 billion for Amtrak, I'm all for it because some of y'all old enough to remember when the train was the way to go. And that should be the way we return to. I mean, I hate that they took out Nashville and Atlanta and all the places, New Orleans, the Silver Star. I've ridden the Cardinal to to to, to Chicago. So, I mean, I know what that is. Anyway, um, in those conversations and then bringing those conversations to, to campus in Washington and having those conversations with young people in classrooms at Howard over the last, oh, now, I guess it's been uh, 13, 12, 13 years. It was clear that these six categories were the were the were the lowest number we could get to that would allow us to tease out all the other conversations. And those last two categories can be confusing. But I think this uh, this uh, sorry, not sorry song and video DJ Khaled, you know, Beyonce, Jay-Z, uh, Nas really gives us an opportunity to see the distinction. That song, that video, that remix is cultural meaning making, meaning near the end of April. In the year 2021 on the calendar we use, that song dropped. Now, the question is, 
10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, will we still be referring to it? Will it still be remembered? Now, the answer to that, probably not. Oh, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. However, we know we will still be singing Strange Fruit, listening to Strange Fruit. We'll still be listening to Aretha Franklin because movement, as we move through time and space, and memory, the things that become so salient, that resonate so deeply, that tap into something much more than just any particular moment in time, cultural meaning making, those things tend to endure. Now, here's where the thing gets very interesting in relation to the, this, this video, this uh, Sorry Not Sorry video. The importance of study is to lengthen out movement and memory to lengthen it out across time and space. So the things that don't survive just readily because we all kind of resonate. So when you hear everybody start getting ready. Now I lay down to sleep. Of course, last night, everybody need a little light. You don't, you don't have to go to school to study that. Somehow this just gets passed on from generation to generation to generation because movement and memory, that one resonated deeply with the culture, deeply with the music, deeply with the rhythm. Those are the rhythms that we came out of our mother's womb first listening to nature when the first human beings came on the planet. Those are the ones that we codified in our science and technology with the drum. Those are the ones that we then carried with us. They couldn't beat out of us. And now those are the ones which shape literally the entire world when it comes to popular culture. That science and technology applied to those ways of knowing and that cultural meaning making that resulted has moved through time and space, movement and memory, movement and memory. Now what hasn't and won't survive in movement and memory without education, without searching for what we thought before are those things which we are either, pre either prevented from doing or deliberately forget. Now, this brings us all the way back. Now, remember all those categories? Ways of knowing, science, technology, movement and memory, culture, meaning making. They all fit and inform who Africans are to each other. The governance category, category number two, even though that's the first one we're concerned about. But in order to have the conversation of who we are to each other, what does this mean? How does this look? What does that mean? What ways of knowing? What science, technology? What movement and memory? What culture, meaning making? Somebody comes in and says, well, of course, if Jay-Z and them, I mean, you know, they're like uh, modern day Shakespeare's. Whoa. Excuse me. Yeah, because, okay, no, no, no. We got to turn down the static. Thank you. We will we will compare them to whoever we're going to compare in the governance structure. But the first thing we have to do is tune out momentarily the rest of these social structures that are always trying to help us define ourselves relative to their interests. And that is the first category, the social structure category. The social structure category, before we even get to governance, which we should be able to get to automatically, but before we get to governance, the first question we have to ask ourselves is in this world we live in now and in the world as we look through time and space, especially over the last 500 years, who are African people to other people? So when people say, for example, Senator Scott, I've come from cotton to Congress, bruh, if you start your memory, your historical memory, your movement and memory in cotton, then of course you can end up where you are right now. It looks like progress. 
you've done quite well. Or they've given you some money. You, you sold insurance. You can't sell insurance in South Carolina to white people without, uh, you know, ingratiating yourself. Every election you've won, you've won the majority white districts beginning in your city council stuff. And then, you know, Nikki Haley appoints you to, to the Senate and then you run, you win because, you know, that's who you are to them. And so what we saw Thursday night was him in a, in a kind of, and it probably quite natural by now, performance of the affable black. The America's not racist black. We've seen that type before. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But what we have to understand is that's because the social structure we live in, when you don't have the momentum of memory, or you don't act upon it in terms of asking the, the question, which is, who are who am I to my people? And then again, maybe that we are not your people, because, again, demographic isn't politics. That's when you end up with what we saw Thursday night. That is that is someone who has said. My relation in time and space in the world, in the moment I'm living, is to the social structure. It's to the social structure. And so I'm saying I have to say this. When we look at the, um, just me finish up with the uh, sorry, not sorry, um, which, of course, sorry, not sorry is a phrase that emerges out of Afri contemporary Africana ways of knowing in many ways. Somebody say, you know, sorry, not sorry. What they're saying is I observed the protocol of respect and you probably don't agree with me but I'm going to have this position anyway. So when they name this, sorry, not sorry. And Jay-Z sitting there with the big dookie jewel on his, you know, on his finger and they smoking the stogies and DJ Khaled pause, by the way, Palestinian brother, shout out to the people for struggling for self-determination in Palestine. It's, it's a very difficult thing in foreign policy. The Democrats and Republicans in the United States are virtually indistinguishable in many ways. One of them is on the issue of Palestine. You know, Cornell Westman talking about that, my friend Mark Lamont Hill. But at any rate, DJ Khaled, Palestinian. But when you say another one and another one, and he's like, OK, that celebration of uh, bling and to use one of the late contemporary phrases or uh, what some people might call uh, one of my former teachers, great teacher, Kariamu Welsh Asante, would uh, call in African aesthetics, uh, the will to adorn. Um, that's something that goes all the way back. You see the Egyptians, you see the Santahini and them in South and in West Africa. You see, I mean, we, we, we know how to wear. We know how to style. We do that quite well. You know, we, 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 we shape our science and technology to produce those kind of things. That's in our deep in our ways of knowing. Right. We've talked about that much a lot. So 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 it isn't the images. However, it is, however, in terms of ways of knowing, there is a certain commingling of the idea that we want our people to be prosperous with this sense of materialism. And this sense of materialism becomes very problematic when we don't have the momentum of memory. When we don't have, in terms of cultivating movement and memory, an understanding of how we have approached building material resources over the arc of time and space, meaning long before enslavement and colonialism, during enslavement and colonialism, after enslavement and colonialism, which has been a very recent moment. And so that now we're here. And as I was watching it, I was reflecting on uh, a book I've mentioned before, David McNally's book, Blood and Money, War, Slavery, Finance and Empire. This is a very recent book. Um, I think it came yeah, 2020 last year. And I'll just read very quickly from from the cover so everybody understands where I'm at with this. In most accounts of the origins of money, we are offered pleasant tales in which it arises to the mutual benefit of all parties as a result of barter. So it's a it's a it's a place marker for labor. The, or the fruits of labor, this basic economics, right? In this groundbreaking study, David McNally reveals the true story of money's origins and development as one of violence and human bondage. 
Money's emergence and its transformation are shown to be intimately connected to the buying and selling of enslaved people and the waging of war. Now, you kind of can get a sense that you get the book. You really gets very deep into this. But the point is this. We're not getting rid of money anytime soon. We've, we, human beings have always had place markers for value and value is connected to labor. Value is connected to something that is assigned to value based on what people want or what people think they want or coerced to want. But it ultimately goes back to what people produce. Right. So we're not getting rid of money. The question is, what is our relationship to those markers for value? And so it isn't as clear as we must reject capitalism and embrace socialism or we must reject socialism and embrace capitalism. These are markers for human social relations. And so when you hear a Joe Biden, for example, on um, on on Wednesday. Give a speech and then come off the podium and one of the first people he stands there talking to is Bernie Sanders. What you see is somebody who got pulled out of the fire in South Carolina by black people. Not because they love Joe Biden so much. So everybody's saying, oh, y'all keeping for Joe Biden. Listen, as John Henry Clark said, don't get mad, get smart. But what you see is that Joe Biden was on the debate stage taking an L, getting punched in the, uh, in the ideological face every debate, looking like he was punch drunk, which is not too different than now. But I mean, a little different. Um, that Joe Biden has been pulled in another direction, I don't even like to use the phrases left and right, because again, language has power. And again, the social structure gives us these markers and we think we have to play in those lines when in fact, we should be asking who are we to each other? And then how does that inform how we engage with the social structure? But he's been pulled in a direction that, uh, that bespeaks a redistribution of even a fraction of value in this country. And so it's no accident I see him standing talking to Bernie Sanders and I'm saying, yeah, because you weren't talking about uh, taxpayer subsidized uh, education, community college. It's, there's no such thing as free anything. Understand that it, you're paying for it. You pay. You already paid for it with your taxes. In fact, when he says they're going to get an IRS $80 billion to go look into anybody making over $400,000 a year and all the corporations and people are saying, well, that means they're going to come look for the poor people. First of all, below a certain level, people don't pay income taxes, even though we all pay taxes, sales tax, all kind of other stuff. Uh, second of all, the things that were proposed on Wednesday night are not revolutionary at all. In fact, many of those things exist in other societies in the world, even though there's no perfect society in the world. However, relative to where we all are in the United States right now, they are a step in the right direction. And if people in the corporations, for example, Zoom, for example, Amazon, all these places don't pay income tax at all, not even income tax, don't pay taxes at all, state, local, federal taxes, and people who have figured out a way making $400,000 and above to move their stuff offshore and do other things. If those people would simply return to some approximation of the tax rates of even five years ago, much less a decade ago, the things that were proposed on Wednesday night are already paid for, meaning go to community college, pick up a degree with your taxpayer money being redirected to that. All the sisters who find themselves as my friend Bill Spriggs, the, the main the chief economist for the AFL-CIO and my colleague Howard uh, reminds us, all the sisters who don't have child care, who uh, would you know, work perhaps in child care instead of at the Amazon uh, plant in Bessemer, Alabama, if child care was paying $15 an hour instead of the near unsustainable household. You can't sustain a household on what they pay most child care workers. But if universal pre-K was there, 
and implement it with redirected tax dollars. Now those sisters and brothers, but I'm thinking particularly about women now, black women in particular, you know, okay, I'm out of this Amazon plant where they're trying to see how many times I went to the bathroom and I got to sit here and figure out, no, I'm going to work in a daycare. I get I get $15 an hour, this kind of thing. These are things that have already been paid for. Uh, expansion of Medicaid. There's no accident that Biden Harris, and again, I'm not a Joe Biden fan. I understand that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, the president, vice president, are politicians. So this is a very important thing we have to understand. Distinguish between a politician as a celebrity. See, this is where the co-mingling comes in in the social structure. They got us looking at people like we know these people. I don't know these people. I know we have an objective. But at any rate, I'm saying I to say that to have a Medicaid expansion, he goes to Georgia on Thursday and says, you know, Medicaid expansion is here. Georgia is eligible. That means he's pointing to Brian Kemp, who was in Texas looking at the border. You need to expand Medicaid because them people that voted for you and T falling out need Medicaid too. And the federal government taxpayer dollars, they've already paid their taxes. That tax their money can be redistributed. I won't go any more with Biden. I'm going to pause here and turn to our brother, Tim Scott. And by brother, I mean that his ancestors suffered what my ancestors suffered. So there's a certain bond that can't be broken that in fact, um, to quote Cedric Robinson, who writes about this in his book, Black Marxism, uh, also black movements in America, kind of it's kind of a main theme in his work or, or one theme in his work is that, you know, when we start talking about people who have shared common oppression and he's talking about African people now coming through enslavement. The farther you are from any benefit that might accrue to a tiny black elite. In other words, access to the ballot, perhaps a political appointment. Perhaps you start a business and get along. Perhaps you've fallen in with the right circles and they pick you to be the representative demographically of everyone else in order to keep everybody else at arm's length. And every time the people start clamoring, they trot you out to say, see, I'm here. So you should be OK because you can get where I am, too. OK, Tim, those people form a small percentage of who we are. I mean, that's just, you know, that's how the class structure works. The vast majority of folk who are not that close, who suffer the most in a society like the United States, in a society like England, in, in these in these radical, this, these radically class divergent societies, those people tend to, according to Robinson, uh, draw on not only a, a collective sense of oppression, but they draw on those, what we would call in our framework, ways of knowing, cultural meaning making, movement and memory, which pass on ways of knowing that have what Robinson would say uh, is a sense of a higher moral standard than the social structure they find themselves in. So when we see a Tim Scott, we are applying to Tim Scott because we see him. So we see the phenotype. We are extending to him an expectation that may or may not accrue. The expectation is that you will have a higher moral standard than the white nationalists who you have fallen in line with because they have benefited you individually. Now, in a second, I'm going to talk about how that works in South Carolina, because, again, this isn't about what he said as much as it is how we should think about what he says, what he said. And so when we talk about America being a racist country or not racist country, asking whether America is or isn't a racist country is a social structure question, meaning it is a legitimate question if the question that precedes it is in an Africana studies framework, who are Africans to other people? And if you really stop to think about it, the reason we had to have a social structure category is because as we were writing curriculum and looking at textbooks, 
And I'm saying all the textbooks up to and through, including the work that's been the great work that's been done with the 1619 Project all the way to today. All of those textbooks are oriented toward answering the social structure question. Who are African peoples to other people? They are the first uh, people who brought democracy. They are the first who thought about who are you? Who are you trying to justify our existence to? Well, we're fighting this battle against racism, and we got to okay, all that's true. But who are we to each other? Well, we are a people who sing, and we got great food. And okay, what about politically? What is our political ethos? Well, we've always believed in democracy. Oh, they was talking about democracy on the boats. They were talking about democracy for 6,000 years. That's the word they use. Well, no, they didn't. Okay, so can, can we can we pause, at least ask the question? And I tell you, sis, when you get a 16-year-old girl to ask that question and then the book don't answer it, the teacher don't answer it, but she go to home and see how community works in real life when you got to do your chores and you, there's expectations. You say, okay, now our next search is, do we have other words? Do we have other language? Do we have other ways of knowing we've created even in the English language? So when somebody says, you know, you know, you get a job, you at the fast food counter, you see your crew come in and they come in, they see you, you see them, they in the back of the line, you went behind the counter, you they ain't even got up to the line yet and they see you and do like this. <laughs> you know what that means? That's what you call in the social structure, democracy. <laughs> in other words, you got a job, which means we all benefit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you don't speak Ebonics, ways of knowing, this isn't black English. No, when you call Ebonics black English, you've strayed into the social structure category. What black, what Ebonics is, y'all taught us English and then we put African grammars, African ways of knowing in it. And guess what? It ain't all verbal because everybody who speak Ebonics know what this means. <laughs> you try to get in the club, you in the back, your boy's the bouncer, you're like, Charles, Charles. In other words, you there, which means we there. You understand? Now, what does that translate into social structure? Oh, that translates to when Alan Iverson shows up with his people. Here comes Jim Gray or Bob Costas. We are with the entourage. I don't understand. Uh, you know, I don't understand. Why. Uh, when Deion Sanders calls his teammates on the 49ers and says, hey, look, y'all, we got a World Series game on Thursday. Can uh can I stay here in Atlanta? Because you know, I, last time I got on the helicopter, I got on the plane, the helicopter. I did both in one day. They didn't even let me play. We trying to win this thing, and they said yes. Here come the sports writers. Here come the social structure. Here come Bob Costas. Here comes Jim Gray. You know, that's very selfish. It's very selfish. I mean, you know, I understand. You know, he doesn't have a contract, but you know, you've got to put the interest of the team first. You don't put the interest of the team first. What you're saying is, this boy to me is entertainment. You understand? Who are Africans to other people? You are fungible resource that we can move around, do whatever the hell we want to do with. And when you act in your own interest, who am I to my people? Who am I to my interests? Oh, no, you don't get to do that. Deion Sanders was trying to negotiate a, 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 a plantation. And I won't go too far. And I just want to mention one other thing as it relates to that, though. Anytime you watch a sports documentary, pay very careful attention, not to the talking heads. Not to the sports writers. Pay very careful attention to how the athletes talk about the other athletes. And you will always get a hint of the governance structure. So when they do these documentaries, oh, Deion Sanders was controversial and Tim McCarver was mad because he ran, he threw ice water. Then they put Bo Jackson in. Bo says, yeah, you know, I know what Deion was talking about. Uh-huh. See, so you ain't, 
So th these are just runners and jumpers in the social structure. They're human beings in the governance structure. And Dion understands that's why he's down there at Jackson State. I'm glad he's down there because he can return the whole thing out. So anyway, so what I'm saying in relation to Tim Scott is this, and then we're gonna we'll, we'll tie this together. We'll tie this together. When Joe Biden was talking on Wednesday and Scott came with the response, he's not responding as a black man. He's responding as a member of the Republican Party. And I don't want to spend too much time on this today, but I thought that, you know, as we were talking, uh, Prof, about this, it would be useful to bring up that movement and memory to connect things that we have either, well, I hate to use the language forgotten because forgotten is like a, a passive kind of thing. Oh, we forgot about this. We forgot about this. No, this was suppressed. See, the social structure, this is why curriculum written in the social structure category is never going to be in the interest of who Africans to each other are to each other. Social structure curriculum is all about who African people are to another entity. And that other entity in this case is the United States of America. So when Mitch McConnell, who I absolutely respect as a white nationalist trying to hold on to his miserable way of life, it's on me if I don't stop him when it comes to my life and your life and our lives. Mitch, when Mitch McConnell attacks the Secretary of Education and says, oh, we shouldn't have these uh, these uh, these guidelines with the 1619 project because it's uh, it's divisive and uh, it's and, mm -mm. you should say that you should say that white nationalists, because your America in your America. I'd have my shirt off today instead of having this conversation. I'd be out here chopping some tobacco. Or I'd be ready. Well, I'm too big, but my cousin will be ready to mount a horse while you sip your mint julep and watch the horses run, uh, you know, in Louisville. We all know Mitch, but guess what? Gone are the days when my heart was young and gay. Sorry, brother. I'm sorry. Gone are the days, baby. Which is why Ozzie Davis wrote that play, Gone Are the Days, which became the play Pearly Victorious, which became the musical Pearly Victorious. The plantation over. I played Pearly at Tennessee State, and I'll never forget the feel of that bull whip in my hand as I came out on stage and told old Captain Cachapee, you ready to catch these licks, baby? Mitch, gone are the days, baby. Gone are the days. But I understand why you're trying to defend it, because social structure curriculum is about creating an American entity. Now, all this is going to tie together very nicely in a second. But what we're doing here is governance structure. Who are Africans to each other? Now, before somebody says, well, that's separatist. No, you have to have a conversation with yourselves, because as W.E.B. Du Bois said as early as 1897, when a speech he gave called The Conservation of Races, he says, every member of the human family has something to contribute to the world. Groups of people in different cultures have things to contribute to the world out of their cultures. Why would you deny African people the same responsibility to contribute the best of what we have thought to the world to improve society, unless not only don't you want it, you've got another role in mind for those people. So when Nancy Pelosi says that George Floyd died for democracy or was a mark, no, George Floyd died because Derek Chauvin killed him. I'm quite sure that if he had to pick between, you know, being alive and everything that happened since, he would rather be alive. And then we just keep working. Because guess, and see, this is the same thing they do to Christmas addicts. 
Addicts is dead, so they say he gave his life for American democracy. Christmas Addicts died because he was down there in the docks in Boston with the people he worked with, and they were throwing rocks and snowballs at the cops who were the British police. They got trigger happy, shot him, and the next thing you know, Addicts is dead. Now he's buried in a common grave with, with five other white boys, and they call him a martyr of the American Revolution. I'm quite sure if you ask Christmas Addicts, would he still whether be alive? He would say, yeah, man, that was the wrong place, wrong time. Shit, I took an L. <laughs> so whether it be Christmas Addicts, whether it be George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, they are not martyrs for American democracy. That is a that is who they are to you. That's a social structure question. The question is, who are who is George Floyd to his daughter, to his family, all these kind of things. So, so now let's tie this up. Let's tie this all together. Let me pause here. All right. When we see Tim Scott, we don't get caught up in, to use the metaphor of the great Bobby Wright out of Chicago, out of Mississippi by way of Chicago, the psychologist Bobby Wright. We don't go for the Matador's red cape because that's the emotion. Oh, and, I, you know, I fell victim to it, too. Man. I'm saying you do like a black Gerber's baby. I mean, I, I engaged in barbershop talk. Man. No question. I mean, you know, I'm like I'm skinning and grinning. You was skinning, sicking that jangle, jangle leg out there in the Rose Garden behind your master, Donald Trump, when y'all gave away almost the exact amount of money it would take to cover everything Joe Biden talked about on Wednesday night. The money was in the coffers until y'all gave it away in 2017 and they stuck you right in the middle of the picture, just getting and grinning. But the point is, you saw, I fell victim to it a little bit, but you know, I'm used to the governance structure. You, when you have, you've been free for a while, you forget how it is to, you don't want to go back into social structure all the time. Because, because the thing is, we're building toward a common humanity. These are not programs that will help only black people. And I understand that there's a very strong reparations case to be made to say we need some things that benefit only us because of the harm that was done. I absolutely agree. But that's applying that higher moral standard that Cedric Robinson talks about. And to, for the life of me, I can't understand why those of us who are deeply invested and have worked for years in the reparations movement we haven't don't have a better way of articulating the idea of reparations as a demand and separating it from the expectation that this social structure is going to somehow have a high moral standard like we have. So anyway, because you can't you can't guilt and shame them. So the idea that there's a reparation. No, you have to force that. And I think a lot of people in the reparations movement, I absolutely know that we do. But anyway. So we see Tim Scott, that response. Let's use the momentum of memory just for a couple of minutes to place Tim Scott in the arc of time and space. Let us remember, let us remember, right? Okay, so let's start very quickly. We don't need to get in Tim Scott's biography. We know where he's from. He told us kind of basics the other night. And so the, the state of South Carolina, you know, and by the way, Prof, and we've, we've been, we've been, learning this for years and now that we've been here for a year and this momentum is building y'all please spread the word this is so important because this isn't the only conversation it may not even be the most important conversation but i tell you what it is it is a point of entry conversation that opens up all the other ones because we're asking different questions once you get those different questions search the world then come back here we talk about it right so south carolina can be used as a microcosm of the experiences of African people in this settler colonial project we call the United States. I understand why Tim Scott, Vice President Harris, 
President Biden would say America is not a racist country. And then Senator Harris and I'm sorry, Vice President Harris and President Biden would then go on to say, however, there are structural racist problems. I understand why they say that they're politicians. That kind of nonsensical talk is an attempt to do something that can literally cannot be done. You want to speak to everybody at once. You don't want to scare the white folk. You want to encourage the black folk who say that's crazy. No, it is crazy, but I can't just say it's crazy because then I won't get these three white votes that I need to put. Okay, so America's not a racist country. No, but it's a racist country. <laughs> okay, I understand. So don't spend no time trying to parse that language. These are politicians, okay? Rather, place those conversations in the governance category. Who are Africans to each other? In the state of South Carolina, and you know, in moments like this, as I say, we got a couple of weeks off and I get a chance to sit here and then we talk, you know, we you know, reflecting on what is the value added we bring? What makes this distinct? It's because we rely very heavily on years and years and years of study and practice. So uh, some academics don't teach. Some academics only teach. Some teachers don't get a chance to stay current. Some people who stay current all the time don't teach. This is where all those things meet. Africana studies was never a space where you're supposed to separate scholarship from teaching. This is a thing that is organic and it's very difficult, particularly when the social structure not only doesn't support it, but moves actively against it, moves actively against it to suppress it, to channel it, to create create programs where you create academics and then you have them publish their scholarship in your presses, your university presses, your and then you say to yourself, look at the advancement. Meanwhile, the people around them out in the, the people right outside the same damn building where the university press books are being published are dying. And then somebody else comes along and writes, hmm, these people have died at a different rate. I've investigated this and now I've figured out that it's racism. Okay, let's publish that book. Then some more people die. My, my, my Jegna Anderson Thompson called that whole area of scholarship that calls itself Black Studies, you know what he calls it? Death watch studies. They die, we count, we write. They die, we count, we write. They die, we count and publish. They die, okay, can you at least publish with your own institutions? No, because if we do that, they won't respect us. Who is they? Don't you know my whole life is oriented toward the social structure, who I am to other people? I'm not worried about who I am to you, except when the social structure sends me to talk to you as your representative to them and to encourage you to remember what I said. Mm -mm. So you know where we start. We start with our institutions. So South Carolina is a great microcosm. Tim Scott's not new in South Carolina. In fact, I'm going to tie him to somebody in a second. Let me just do this very quickly because I'm got my eye on the clock. We won't go long today because the other thing, as we talked about, we're trying to dial back the amount of time we spend live on Saturdays. You know, we want folk to go to narrative. I mean, you like, well, it's subsidized. Uh, we, you know, we, we are serious about this. We're building this world. So at any rate, building this space, this space we want. South Carolina, when I think of South Carolina, there's one figure that looms large over all of this. Um, in fact, I want to give you, I've mentioned these books before, and I think I should have them around here somewhere close at hand so I could show them to you. Uh, oh, here we are. I've mentioned these books before, and you know, I don't know why. I think the spirit of Michael Harriet is always strong in here. I don't need South Carolina. South Carolina, man. These two books, uh, these are two sisters, Rhonda Thomas and Susanna Ashton, that put together a book of primary sources called the South Carolina Roots. 
of African-American thought. And you see Jesse Jackson, Septa McClark, you see Daniel Payne, you see the man, Buck Benny, Benjamin Elijah Mays, you see the great Mary McLeod Bethune, all these are South Carolinians. Now, ideologically, politically, they're going to be closer to the end of the spectrum that some people might call left or progressive. But I don't think about it in terms of left or progressive or right or conservative. I think about it. Who are African people to each other? These are institution builders. These are educators, so forth. And they go through a number of them. In fact, just as we came on, I was looking over here for my friend Ida Jones's book on Kelly Miller, uh, who was at Howard University for a number of years. But there's a one, what's one person in here I'm going to mention a lot. Not Archibald and Francis Grimke out of the 19th century. Um, Marion Wright Edelman, of course, Jim Clyburn, of course. I mean, so many others, Randall Kennedy, Kennedy. And then on the spectrum, you might consider right or some of the social structure, Armstrong Williams, of course. So there's a, there's a diversity of opinion there, but there's one figure I'm going to mention in a second who, uh, and then these, these pieces were pulled out by Walter Edgar and Bernard Powers from a larger project, the uh, South Carolina uh, Encyclopedia, huge project. They pulled out the ones, the entries they were on black people, wrote new introductions and extended the work and published this little book, 101 African-Americans who shaped South Carolina. Uh, Tim Scott's not in either of these books. Why would he be? Again, movement and memory. Nobody going to remember Tim Scott. Nobody's going to remember Tim Scott. In fact, what we have to do now in terms of curriculum and asking better questions is have to remember in that governance category, who have Africans been to themselves and in the social justice category, who have Africans been to other people in South Carolina and what can we learn from those experiences? And that's where I want to start. So in the South Carolina social structure, former British colony, a man who was born before there was a South Carolina in terms of a country. Hold on, son. Aha, here we go. I've been reading this book. I think I showed it to y'all a couple of weeks ago. Robert Elder's new book, Calhoun, American Heretic. There he is. Don't he look like America? Anyway, this is Josh Hawley. Yeah, this is Josh Hawley. Yeah, this is, yeah, this, this, this is Ted Cruz. Well, not Ted no, Cruz. No, it's not Ted Cruz. You know what I'm saying? The reason I say that, let me just, let me explain. Let me explain. Uh, born and raised in South Carolina, as uh, he begins the book, in fact, let me just go there. Uh, he says that he was born in 1782. Now, there was no formal treaty. This is after Cornwallis surrenders to Washington's army at, at, uh, at Yorktown, Virginia. But there is no formal treaty yet between Britain and the United States. He was born before there was a United States of America, in other words. And he used to remind people of that. Why is Calhoun important? Because John C. Calhoun is one of the most important politicians and thinkers in the construction of the settler state we call the United States. His, his shadow is the one that creates a Tim site. In fact, he launched it from South Carolina. And here's where it's gonna get a little heavy for us, I think. Oh, by the way, why do I say Hawley and Cruz? John C. Calhoun went to Yale. He's a white nationalist with the Ivy League education who then tries to establish himself as some kind of intellectual in what he's defending, which is the slave power. Now, if you reflect on Cruz, who is considered remarkably, I think, people still writing about this in the social structure of mass media. He was a champion debater. Yeah, okay, he a champion debater. Bust up in the barbershop around noontime on Southside Chicago. Let's see how far he get with that bullshit. <laughs> in other words, but no, but in the social structure, this, this is this your king? No, it's, oh, we don't like him. He, go, he goes to Cancun. He's a coward, but he was a champion debater. Why y'all still? Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, y'all. You know, there's this sense of intellectual value 
that is more performance than it is substance. And that's not to say that there isn't a standard of choosing the best words, the best speech. I mean, Yuque Armand writes about that in the eloquence of the scribes as it relates to ancient Egyptians. But I'm saying that because there's this Ivy League education and, and John C. Calhoun is one of these Ivy League guys. And of course, young Josh Hawley, same thing, Ivy League education, two Ivy League degrees, right? Including a law degree. So that's why I say that they're that. But they're also ideologically attuned to him. John C. Calhoun died in March 1850. This is before the Fugitive Slave Act really got weaponized by the federal government. See, the thing about white nationalists is they like small government in the Republican Party now. And so remember, I said white nationalism is a signifier. It, float, it floats between parties. But I'm going to talk about the GOP in a minute and relate to this as well. Because in some ways, the, the, the GOP has not strayed at all from its founding interests, which is the promotion of business. And small government, except when small government doesn't fit business. The expansion of the Fugitive Slave Act after the death of John C. Calhoun allowed the federal government, gave, gave the power of the federal government, not just by law, but by action, to authorize the return of any African who had escaped enslavement to a state where enslavement was illegal back to the state that they found themselves enslaved in. Now, once you have gotten to a free state like Ohio, say you're trying to go from Kentucky to Ohio, by the way, footnote to come back to in a second, Tim Scott don't like to be called Uncle Tim, although I'm sure he got some nieces and nephews, but I know he don't mean that. <laughs> now, <laughs> he don't like Uncle Tom. Now, most people already know this, but for the few who might not, maybe they're overseas or don't know, you know, or young people watching this. Uncle Tom isn't an insult. It became an insult. Here is a brother who was one of the inspirations for Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom. This is Josiah Henson. This is Jared Brock's book. There's a lot of books. I mean, Jer uh, Josiah Henson dictated his own story. And, 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 and so, but Harriet Beecher Stowe, when they asked her after in the 1850s, she published uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is considered one of the, in the social structure, one of the, uh, one of the, elements of European cultural meaning making, white cultural meaning making that lasted. And of course, in terms of movement and memory, in terms of white movement and memory, you know the word Uncle Tom's Cabin. Some of y'all had to read Uncle Tom's Cabin with Topsy and Uncle Tom and all the, you know, the kids, Simon Legree and all the characters, right, in it. But after she published it and sold all these copies and exploded, people start asking her, you just, you know, what they said is the people who were for slavery, they say, oh, you make, you're making that up. There's no such thing. In fact, then they started writing counter books where black people escaped to the north and then the people up north were the real racists and then their slave masters came and got them and they brought them back to peace because they don't want to really leave. They want to be on the planet. All these propaganda books. See, the thing about movement and memory is when you are forced out of remembering, you think what you're seeing now is new. No. No, 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 no. As Mark Twain said, I misquoted him. I didn't attribute right to one first time. So, you know, history may not rhyme, but no, what, what is it? History, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. In other words, we've seen these responses. So Uncle Tom's Cabin comes out. All these critics say that's a lie. That ain't true. So then she publishes a book called uh, Harry Beecher Stowe, The Keys to Uncle Tom's Cabin. If you pick up the keys to Uncle Tom's cabinet, it's nearly near a thousand pages, like 900 some pages. She goes and she then annotates all the different places she got ideas for the characters and the stories in the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. One of the places, and it's like 
seven or eight times. I'm trying to go from memory now because I was looking around for my copy of both uh, The Keys to Uncle Tom's Cabin and Dread, A Tale of the Dismal Swamp, which she wrote as well, but I couldn't find either one of them. But it's like seven or eight times she quotes uh, in The Keys to Uncle Tom's Cabin. She said, my inspiration for this or the way I think about this was Josiah Henson. So this is the man who's considered, some people call him the real Uncle Tom. I think that's going too far. However, he was the inspiration for a great deal of this. So much so that Martin Delaney, who we're going to talk about in a second relative to Tim Scott, Martin Delaney writes Frederick Douglass, his friend Fred Douglass, and he said, hey man, Harry Beecher Stone made a lot of money off Uncle Tom's cabin. Did she get, did she send any to uh, Josiah Henson? Because, you know, Josiah Henson had to leave this country. Now, why do I mention that as it relates to Tim Scott, as it relates to this question of Uncle Tom? In the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uncle Tom is this pious, religious, kind of docile figure. He's taking these L's, but then eventually kills the enslaver. Oh, it's a little complicated. Yeah, because what she's portraying is this is what this, this system does to people. It trains them out. Josiah Henson was born into enslavement. He was enslaved for a time right down the street where I'm sitting right now, Montgomery County, Maryland. That's Silver Spring, right across D.C., you know. This is Confederate territory, plantation, you know, Maryland's plantation state. In fact, Harriet Tubman said of Uncle Tom's Cabin when it came out, what did Harriet Tubman say? Because I think uh, he actually opens uh, one of the chapters on this. Let me see if I can find it quickly because it was hilarious when Harriet Tubman say, no, I won't be able to find it. Here it is. Uh, <laughs> Harriet Tubman said, I've heard Uncle Tom's Cabin read. Now, mind you, Harriet Tubman, like Tim Scott's grandfather, couldn't read or write at this stage, even though she too dictated a memoir. So she says, I've heard Uncle Tom's cabin read, and I'll tell you, Mrs. Stowe's pen hasn't begun to paint what slavery is as I have seen it in the far south. That's Harry Tom said. So y'all think that's bad? <laughs> you know what? Pull up a chair. I'm going to tell you about this right here. Let me tell you about when the cat hit me with that iron in the head. You know what I'm saying? In other words, that scene that people winced from when Steve McQueen portrayed it uh, in 12 Years a Slave. Right. So um, at any rate, what happens in, 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 in Josiah Henson's life, Henson was enslaved. Henson had brutal enslavers. Uh, it's terrible. One of his earliest memories as a little boy is his father getting his ear chopped off and getting beat damn near to death because he had dared to hit a white man in an altercation because the white man was beaten up on the sister and he jumped down the middle of it, beat the white man up. They brought him back after he tried to escape and they basically mutilated him and all this kind of thing. So Henson, Henson grows up devoutly religious. He becomes an overseer in the, on the plantation. A couple of times he's almost sold deep South as what happens to members of his family, including his father, who they sell away. He never sees again. I think it was Alabama. They sent him to Henson is then entrusted after they sent him. He's in Kentucky at this point. He's entrusted in taking enslaved Africans from in Kentucky to Ohio. He gets across the Ohio River. By the way, those of you who read Beloved, you know that Ohio River, the crossing, right? Now you're going from enslaved territory to free territory. Any of y'all know about that in the Midwest? You know Covington, Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. Any of y'all know that? Coming down, I guess it's I-70 now before he hooks up with 65. Henson gets to the free territory, and every time he's on a barge, this boat, with these enslaved Africans. Every time they pull up to the shore, here comes some more free African people in Ohio saying, hey man, let's go. You can get out. You can get out. Henson, devout Christian. Now I promise, I promise I'm going to deliver these enslaved Africans. The brother told me to take it to his brother and I'm going to take them to the black people who, who's enslaved. They're on the boat like, 
wait, this is free territory. Yeah. So, bro, what you going to do? No, we got to look. I promised. I promised. Tim, it's not new. So at any rate, he delivers them. But eventually he's had enough. He escapes. He goes to Canada. He uh, is at a settlement called Dawn, D-A-W-N, one of those black settlements that they had. And in fact, it's very important to understand that Henson, in fact, let me just go here to this. Um, well, there, there, there's what, uh, you know, you know what? I don't even need to, um, I don't need to do that because I've, I've covered what I wanted to cover out of this and I want to get to the, to the main point. The name Uncle Tom is a lot more complicated. What Uncle Tom stands for is what it has come to stand for. And there's a lot of books been written on this. In fact, there's one book specifically on this genealogy of Uncle Tom, right? What the phrase has come to stand for is a black person who is a sellout. Is, a, is just a sellout. However, if we're in the governance structure category, we ask who are African people to each other? We understand that it's a lot more layered and complicated than that. Meaning that we have to think about how that happened. What did the social structure do to create a circumstance that had a Josiah Henson, Henson wake up late in life to decide, oh no, hell no, and get his whole family out of it. What did it do so that Harry Beecher Stowe in the social structure creates this Uncle Tom character that is docile and kind of takes it and kind of gets beat and then eventually snaps as well. What's being described is not so much about the individual who's being used, but the social structure that has created them. So when we see Tim Scott, rather than wave at the red flat, red cave and say, that's Uncle Tom. No, ask yourself this question. What were the circumstances that created a Tim Scott? And that's where I want to end up today. Calhoun was vice president of the United States under two vice presidents, John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, two very different vice presidents. He was the secretary of war. Uh, he was uh, secretary of state and a senator. He died in 1850. And why is that important? Calhoun was the intellectual architect of what we would now think of. And Dr. King talked about this right in his speeches. Interposition, interposition and nullification, meaning that we have a federal government in the United States, but that the state power should supersede the federal government on everything that is not explicitly enumerated in the federal constitution. That's very important. That's, that's very important. In fact, if you go here to the very beginning of his book, he talks about this very quick. He says, um, Calhoun made the argument that every, and this is the second part, Calhoun made the argument that every significant interest in a society should possess ironclad veto power in any legislative process, an idea that he called the concurrent majority. Calhoun's aim was to save the union as he thought it ought to be, but his theories helped lay the philosophical groundwork for Southern secession a decade later. All right, stay with me. This is very important. What Calhoun is saying is that every interest should have veto power in a legislative assembly. He was saying it at a time when slavery was the law of the country in certain parts of this country. What he is saying is y'all can't overturn the slave power. This man was the architect of what we call now the filibuster. You can't understand the filibuster until you understand this. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Calhoun dies in, 19, in 1850. 
That's before the Fugitive Slave uh, Act. That's before they overturned the Missouri Compromise. That's before Dred Scott in 1857, where the, the Supreme Court of the United States, the federal government basically upholds the weaponization of the Fugitive Slave Act by saying, I don't care where you are in the United States. If you in New York City, if you up in Cleveland, I don't care. I'm free. No, nah, you ain't free nowhere. If the law says you're unfree somewhere else because we have the right to do whatever the hell we want to do with you. This is very important as it relates to black people thinking there are regions of this country where you could be free. It's not true now. But here's the here's the thing. Calhoun was not a secessionist. Oh, here we go. Which is why Elder, every book been published now in 2021. If it's on something like this. They go back and rewrite the preface to talk about what happened last summer after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey were killed. What Elder says here is people like to act like Calhoun is dead and gone and he was a secessionist. He was No, that's not true. You know what Calhoun was? Calhoun believed in the United States. Calhoun said we should not secede because the framework of the country protects white interests. As long as we can veto anything that happens, we're okay. In fact, we are the true Americans. Fast forward to 2021. If you are having an argument trying to persuade somebody to abolish the filibuster, if you are starting your argument with we are all Americans and we're better than that, then you haven't, you don't know any history. Or if you do, you are deliberately misleading people in terms of the momentum of memory. This has never been a country. It has never been a nation. It is a political formation with many different groups in it who are all contesting to press for their interests. And in the case of oppressed people, Native Americans, enslaved, formerly enslaved Africans, the descendants, uh, um, the Native Americans and the formerly enslaved Africans weren't always on the same page. You had people who enslaved Native Americans who enslaved Africans. You had some who did political coalition. But the point is, as long as whiteness has the veto power, there will never be any framework where we can move together to our mutual human progress, even for white people who don't have resources. This is not, so, so no, it's when you, and Jim Scott says, you know, America's not racist. That's not true. Vice President Harris says, America's not racist. That's not true. Joe Biden said, America's not racist. That's not true. John C. Calhoun would consider himself the quintessential American. All right, let me, let me tie this together. In fact, uh, Richard Hofstadter wrote about, you know, intellectual history in America in 1940s, 50s, and 60s. He once called, Calhoun, the marks of the master class. In other words, he believed in sharing the power in the master class. It's very important, very important. Now, here we go. Oh, man, I'm thinking about this. Who are Africans to each other? South Carolina. Let me go to the old standby, the great Lerone Bennett. Because what happens is, and this is where I want to tie together. I know I'm doing, I'm going, a, going a lot of ways, but I'm gonna bring this momentum now. I think if I just pause here for a second, I'll bring all this forward. Before the Civil War, clearly the labor engine in the South is the labor, our ancestors' labor. This is what he's writing about in Blood. So that labor is generating the wealth, is generating the resources that are animating the American project particularly since it's still very young and Europe is still Europe. They fight each other, but, but America's trying to get in on the world stage. Increasingly, however, there is a fear that enslavement is going to be destabilized. What will destabilize it? Us and the governance structure fighting to get out, you know, uh, you know, and 
Interests in the North who are trying to diversify, you know, they got these interests in New England have banking interests, have finance and insurance interests in the South. They're connected. The biggest trading house for enslaved Africans in the country is in Northern Virginia, right across from D.C. That's where Solomon Northrop gets kidnapped where they sent him to Louisiana. So, all, so, so, so it's all intertwined. The richest people in the country live in the South up until the Civil War. The, so what happens is business organizes as the Whig Party dissolves. Business organizes a political party to advance its interest. That's known as the GOP. The GOP is stereotypically considered the party of business, even though we know in a two-party state where capitalism is the grounding uh, structure of this country, of this project, of the modern world system, both parties are the parties of capital, but the, the Republicans don't even pretend. You understand? And you got to win elections with votes, even if you're excluding black people at, some pro at one point and women at one point, including black women, of course, you still got to win with votes. So that requires numbers. And so the Democrats emerge as the party of the common people, even though they got business, they're beholden to business as well. The GOP, straight business. And because they increasingly look at enslavement as bad for business and unnecessary in terms of labor, because they shortened the immigrants coming from Europe at that point. I mean, so what would it be to keep those Africans in the South in a form of debt peonage? You know, you don't necessarily have to have slavery. Plus, you can say, well, you know, we're against slavery. And then they become the home for the people who truly are against slavery. So the Charles Sumner's in them, right? In fact, the guy that came Charles Sumner was a congressman from South Carolina. This is where it gets very interesting, right? So what you see is the GOP then, from the 1850s when it's founded, through the election of Lincoln, the re-election of Lincoln, coming into the Reconstruction period, they back the end of enslavement. They back punishment. They back, the radical Republicans do, they back Reconstruction, which means they get to go and open up the South. Let me pause there and say this. Jefferson Davis, president of the South, who was at John C. Calhoun's funeral in, in, in 1850 as a senator, his friend from the United States Senate. Jefferson Davis was never tried. Andrew Johnson and them, this is Johnson, not even Lincoln. They were going to try Jefferson Davis for treason. Do you know why they didn't try him for treason? They were afraid a jury would acquit him. Fast forward to 2021. Y'all saw that George Floyd trial. In other words, white nationalism is so powerful that the guy who was the president of the thing that tried to end the country, they were afraid to put him on trial after the war because they didn't know if they could seat 12 white people that wouldn't sympathize with him. So Jeff Davis never went to trial. Anyway, coming back. 1860s, Civil War is over. 1870s, that period of Reconstruction. Guess what? Those business interests opened up the South. You know, one of the major businesses in the South was railroads. So the GOP business interests are down there trying to open up the railroads. And what you see is those railroad interests don't conflict with Jim Crow, but they do need Republican state legislatures. They need Republican elected officials to break the back or at least push back the white nationalists long enough to get their business interests seated. And once they do that, they slowly begin to recede in terms of politics, leaving those black people and a few and a few white people who are their allies to fight it out with this resurgent white nationalists who were in the Democratic Party at that time. Now, mind you, the Republican Party, party of business, then to now, consistent, but on race, it's situational. What do we need to do to advance our fundamental interests? And South Carolina, it all, uh, uh, it all collides. Let me go to Black Power USA where Lerone Bennett devotes a whole chapter to South Carolina. In fact, Lerone Bennett in Black Power USA devotes chapter three, South Carolina, post-bellum paradise for Negroes. But let me go to page seven, 
where he begins prelude to power. He says, um, where am I right now? Hold on. Give me a second. Oh, no, that's not where I want to go. That's not where I want to go. Oh, no, I think I left. I think I lost the page. I, man, I don't I don't want to paraphrase Lerone Bennett. So give me a second because I have a couple of editions. Take, your, of time. Take your time. No, no, no. I want I want I want to make sure we get it because let me see here. Uh, let me go back to the beginning. Uh, this is very um, let me let me make sure I get it, because what I really want people to understand is why 1876 was so important. Oh, no, no, this is this is too bad because I read this enough and I go back. Oh, if y'all give me 30 seconds, we've been going pretty good because normally what would happen is I'll be sitting here quiet and I'll just sit. And if I'm quiet for a minute, it'll come back to me exactly where it is but i'm not going to be able to do it right now that's too bad because i really wanted to to make that point anyway i'll just have to paraphrase i'm sorry y'all um oh see <laughs> i knew it chapter nine america at the crossroads see i had to stop talking that's i see see the thing about it is when we say i am my ancestors and this is one thing i do credit ben carson for really bringing into focus for me in something he knows what he's talking about which is the brain at least he knew what he's talking about. I hope he's well. You know, if he's not, I hope he, you know. Anyway, of course, that everything you ever read or experienced is in your memory. The only question is, can you access it? And I and, and every time I think about that, I say, you know, I can't. Oh, everybody be quiet. Just and I'm when I say everybody be quiet, most of the time I'm talking to all them people I read who were in my head. All right, this is what Lerone Bennett says. Lerone Bennett says, Black Rikers, this is chapter nine, America at the crossroads. That's why, because I was at the beginning of the book and I forgot it's at the end. Black Reconstruction had reopened the whole question of the meaning of America. Oop, because during that period, you got black elected officials. Tim Scott is not the first black elected official coming out of South Carolina. He's not the first black senator. But in, in general, he is in a long line of black elected officials who almost all are ideologically opposed to who he is. And without the momentum of memory, you could look at Tim Scott and say, how did he get like that? You should ask that even twice when you say he's in South Carolina, coming out of Charleston, Joseph Rainey, the great Robert Smalls. I mean, all of these people. Right? And then you get a Tim Scott. There's a reason why you won't be talking about Tim Scott once he leaves office. It doesn't matter. He's not going to be in movement and memory. But anyway, this is what he says. He says, Black Reconstruction had reopened the whole question of the meaning of America. Faced with the principle made black flesh, many Americans had already repudiated the Declaration of Independence in their hearts. In other words, we believe that all men are created equal. Wait, the war is over. Wait, them? Black people? Oh, no. In my heart, I repudiate that. Did y'all see the poll uh, the other day? 70% of, no, 78% of the, of the GOP people polled said that they thought that Biden didn't win the election. Now, the question becomes, you know, America's not a racist country. Or we're all Americans, which I don't necessarily think are that difference is a distinction without a difference. Do have you embraced the Declaration of Independence in your heart? Well, yeah. Have you really? So how they how come they still killing black people and we ain't all out in the streets? Anyway, he says, and now in 1876, this is the end of Reconstruction. Men in the North and South were organizing an interstate conspiracy that would lead most men to openly denounce the Declaration of Independence 
on the centennial of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, he got a whole chapter here where they in Philadelphia and the black people come to the exposition in Philadelphia, like what the hell is going on? And he's saying the North and the South engage in a criminal conspiracy. Fast forward to 2021, all these voting laws that uh, are being passed. Florida just did theirs with that corn pone governor of Florida and Georgia and all these, you know, and Texas is next on the list. People saying Delta should boycott. Coca-Cola should boycott. They're like, we strongly denounce. Yeah, but you ain't boycotting. No. What? This ain't no country. This is a business. <laughs> Do you understand? And Mitch, that's why Mitch McConnell bowed up the other day and said, you know, Republicans drink Coca-Cola and fly too. In other words, yeah, but we heard a son of South, of North Carolina at, by way of Brooklyn, Michael Jordan, say Republicans uh, buy sneakers, too. At least that's what's attested to him when he wouldn't endorse Harvey Gantt, who would have been a senator out of South Carolina, would have knocked Jesse Helms out. Again, business driving this. He goes on, he says, by singular coincidence, this is the, this is the money line in this paragraph, by singular coincidence, this conspiracy coincided with a massive wave of racism in America. This is 1876. In March of that year, the Supreme Court gutted the 14th and 15th Amendments by limiting power of the federal government to protect black voters in the South. Crushank, Louisiana. This is where they stole the ballot boxes. 2021, we've seen this before. History don't repeat itself, but it rhymes. We've seen this before. You get people, you make insane ways for them to be able not to vote. And then if that doesn't work, you show up with your guns at the courthouse. That's March. He says in April, the governor of California spoke at a mammoth anti-Chinese mass meeting in San Francisco. Okay, this anti-Asian legislation, uh, Asian hate crime legislation, which passed the Senate with two no votes. Oh, well, yeah, we've seen this before. This rise, it's not a rise in violence. The violence never went away. 1876, you come forward 12 years, it's the, it's the Chinese Exclusion Act. White nationalism will always be present in this country. There's no, America's not a racist country. Anyway, finally, and in June, the white man's remorseless aggression against the red man was temporarily stymied by the massacre of Custer at Little Bighorn. All this is 1876, leading up to the election of 1876, where the North, I'm sorry, where the Democratic Party basically tells black people in the South, pause, where the Republican Party, which needed black people and black votes to get those business interests seated in the South, basically tell black people in the South, bet, be out, peace, good luck and turn it over to the Democrats. Now, since then, who are African people to each other? Governor's question. We have constantly been fighting to try to create some space for self-determination. That isn't an allegiance to one party or another. It's an attempt to create a tactical wedge to advance our common interests. And that's where, I mean, there's a lot more. Maybe we'll get into it a little bit. I know we're about to go now into conversation. I'm really looking forward to this. But I want to end by pulling one of those figures out of that book that I mentioned, the South Carolina book, except I'm going to use him. This is a guy who is a hero. He is an unvarnished hero. He is one of the titans of world history in the last century and a half. This brother was born in Charlestown, Virginia, now West Virginia, uh, an explorer, a scholar, a very important figure, a novelist who wrote his own, in, in a way, response to Uncle Tom's Cabin called uh, Blake of the Huts of America. We talked about it many times. Uh, his name is Martin Delaney, Martin Robeson Delaney. Very good friends with Fred Douglas. Delaney, some people don't know, Martin Delaney, near the end of his life, ends up in South Carolina. Because see, this is what happens in South Carolina. South Carolina during this period of civil war and then reconstruction is majority black. So the Republican party is winning elections and they're moving fast. Understand 
You got a lot of black people coming out of elect state officials, elected officials, local officials. Remember, this is Slander Good Robeson. If you go into narrative and looked at our conversation on Essie Robeson, her grandfather, uh, Cardozo, is elected to statewide office. But this white nationalist core, this crew, these people who are loyal to the philosophy of John C. Calhoun are saying, no, nah, we got to figure out a way to get back in power. And by the way, if you think Calhoun is dead and buried, go to Augusta, Georgia. As my friend Catherine Adams, who was teaching at that time at um, Payne College, we drove past the Masters where they play the Masters, Augusta National. It's on a highway named for John C. Calhoun. And they can't change the name because what they've done in Georgia is do this is what they did in these voting rights bills that Tim Scott, unlike his grandfather who couldn't read, Tim Scott either didn't read or lying about, you know, you don't racist. Okay. What they do is, the Republicans hate big government unless it can advance their interests. And in this case, in place like Augusta, Georgia, you can't change the name of a street without permission from the state. See, they take the power away from localities if they don't like the people who are in elected office. All right. Returning now to South Carolina, Delaney neighboring South Carolina to Georgia. I mean, some people like James Brown, North Augusta, that's basically Georgia, South Carolina. It's an imaginary line in some ways, going back to the revolution, but that's a whole nother conversation about where you had enslaved Africans and where you had white people and that you had indentured. Anyway, Delaney goes to South Carolina because that is a place where he says we can have potential for black power. We can have, we, we, this is during the period when they reneging on 40 acres and a mule. Delaney is like, we got political power. We can get homesteads. He gives speeches, homesteads for the blacks. We need to have political power. He is down there. He said, I'm not going to run for political office. Eventually he runs for political office, which is where we're going to end. But before we get to that, I want to mention that he writes letters to his friend, Frederick Douglass in 1871. This is before reconstruction has ended, but the Klan has been formed in 1866, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest. In Tennessee, you've got the white nationalists now creeping up in these state legislatures. You've got the Republican business interests increasingly in bed with these white boys, these racists. And so they're increasingly withdrawing. But in a place like North Carolina, you've got the fusion movements, Reverend Barber trying to re revive that in North Carolina. In South Carolina, you've got a majority black group. So you can still make this power real and you're trying to make real inroads. So what's happening, though, is Delaney sees what's in the offing. So he writes Fred Douglas and he says, you know, oh, by the way, 1868, the election, I think that was the first time Grant uh, ran. No, Grant's re-election. No, no, it was first time. It was first time. The whole thing was this. Black people in America were talking about, we need a black pre vice presidential candidate. Again, the momentum of memory. This ain't the first time. And we actually had some before. Go look up George Washington Whitby. Uh, go look up, what's the sister's name? Uh, Lucy Parsons. Uh, but anyway who kind of, that's, that's kind of a little bit more ambiguous, but Delaney in 1871 says to, he writes Fred Douglas and he says, dear sir, it's been 10 years since we last met at your library in Rochester to discuss and reconcile ourselves to President Lincoln's war policy, 1861. Delaney's back from Africa where he had hooked up with the Nigerians and said, look, we're going to come over here, grow the cotton and put everybody out of business. We just going to leave. And the Alake of Abiokuta says to him, okay, why don't y'all come? The Civil War jumps off. He comes back to the United States, becomes a major in the Civil War. Very important. But he's saying it's been 10 years since we met debating on whether we should get in this thing and if so, how? So I ain't written you in 10 years. He said, since then, slavery has been overthrown. This is the beauty of these documents. You can, you ain't got to speculate. Our ancestors fought for that. No, if you're your ancestors, you need to go listen to them. 
He says, since then, slavery has been overthrown and no reunion of what were for 20 years or more the leading colored men of the country who shaped the policy and course of our race, which led to disenthrallment having taken place and consequently no in interchange of ideas by council. I therefore deem it of importance at this time to take a political review of South Carolina, which I think will apply justly to nearly, if not the whole of the quote, reconstructed states of the South, as well as the national government. What is he saying there? He said, Fred, before the war, we met all these places and he goes through the dates and names, Troy, New York, Cleveland. We met in, in New York. Now, all those Negro conventions that our friend Gabrielle Foreman has revived in the recent work, but that Howard Bell really did, professor at Morgan State University a generation ago and, and published all that stuff. Remember those Negro convention movements they were having? He said, after the war, we had no more meetings. Where's the national meeting? Where's the get together? Now, in the, in the, after this, during the period where our parents and grandparents were born, you get the Negro Sanhedrin, you get the National Negro Congress, you get these attempts to bring people together in, in Gary 1972, the Black National Political Convention. But every time we talk now, we should just get together. Why don't we get together? Delaney Wright and Douglas like, dude, this was the time when we should never have stopped getting together. So we stopped getting together. So let me just focus on South Carolina. He then goes through how after the Civil War, Everybody ran to South Carolina. White school teachers going to help the Negro. People trying to make money. Everybody jumped in. He said they all jumped in politics. And then they tried to keep black people ignorant and just going to vote for whoever they're going to vote for. And then he said, whenever you start talking about organizing black people, this is what he said. He said, he said, these ridiculous absurdities were fostered by the demagogues, the better to conceal their own perfidy. In other words, I'm going to conceal my real interests by saying what he's about to say next. They kept themselves in the best positions. And they taught Republicans know no race. This is the thing. He says, they came down here to steal. And we said, let's get these black people together as a voting block and decide, no, no, no. Are you Republican? Well, yeah, because we can't be Democrat. I mean, that's the white spirit. Okay, Republicans know no race. I'm a Republican too. So we have to vote. This is what you might call electoral capture. Except this ain't the Democrats telling you to stand up and salute the flag. It's the Republicans during this period of time to tell you to do the same. Now, he goes on to talk about social relations. He goes on to talk about what needs to be done. We need to fight for equality before the law. We need intelligent leaders of our own race. He said, demagogues and disreputable men must be discarded. And then he says, I'm not running for anything. All right, now here's where we're going to end. But he ends up running. Why? He runs for lieutenant governor in the South Carolina state election of 1874, because he said these Republicans, these Republicans have sold us out. They really don't care about black people. They care about business. And so they needed our votes, but now they're beginning to get in bed with these, with these white boys. You know what? Let me run. And this is fascinating. He runs on a Republican ticket. He runs on a Republican ticket he calls himself, they call themselves the independent Republicans. He runs as lieutenant governor. The white dude runs as governor. They win. They come in second, but they take enough votes, according to their critics from the Republicans, that the Democrats get in power. These are the white nationalists. At this point, the Democratic Party is the white nationalist party. Martin Delaney is criticized for third party politics. In 1874, fast forward to the Green Party, fast forward to people say, well, they, they're going to vote. They're not going to vote. Uh-uh, uh-uh. This is not the first time we have, we should learn from our attempts to get into third party, party politics before. And then in 1876, that same year, they have the election, the federal election, Delaney endorses Wade Hampton. 
Wade Hampton was a former Confederate. Wade Hampton was a real racist who came to governor of South Carolina. And here is the comparison between Delaney, who is an unvarnished hero, and Tim Scott, who mad because they call him Uncle Tim when he stands up and salutes the moneyed interest in the GOP that have been the same since 1854, five and six to now. The only thing that changes is in order to get in office, you got to have a base and the base of the white nationalists move from the Democrats to Republicans, which means that's your base and you have to make them stand up. So Tim got to shake the jangle leg. Here's the comparison between those two politically different from each other. The governance structure question. Who are Africans to each other? Can we have an intelligent conversation? Here's where politicians are the same. Delaney endorses Hampton. That's an odd chance. But here's what Wade Hampton told him. Wade Hampton said, I am going to fight for African-American citizens in South Carolina. Delaney might have believed that. The black, the Democratic State Convention was held in Orangeburg that year, the summer of 1876. They chose three black nominees for state offices. So Democrats going to reach out to the, to the black people. Delaney is like, hmm, but here's the thing that I think they may share in common. And I love Martin Delaney. I wish I could have met that brother. I feel like I know him enough from reading. And the man on this is the great Kwaku Larry Crow out of Dayton, Ohio. That's that's the Delaney scholar. A lot of people have written about Delaney, but if you want to name from the inside, go get Larry Crow. This is where I think they have the closest. Early in 1876, Delaney was found guilty of stealing $212 and trusted him in 1871 by the John Wesley Methodist Church congregation, despite the fact that he had put the money in a county tax warrant, which had lost its value and was prepared to reimburse the church with the help of loans and friends. Governor Chamberlain refused to pardon Delaney until Hampton petitioned Chamberlain on Delaney's behalf in August 1876. Delaney felt indebted to Hampton for that intervention, and he also believed that Hampton meant what he said when he asserted that he would work for Black civil rights. Why do I bring that up? Rather than debate whether America's a racist country or not, that's not debatable, not by serious people. Go to the governance structure category and ask yourself, black politicians, are they any different than white politicians when it comes to external pressure? And when you look at a brother like Tim Scott, all you got to do is ask yourself, what is your relation to the social structure? Did they make you? Do you owe somebody who's on the payroll? And if you look at Martin Delaney, who was unquestionable, in terms of his commitment to black life, the deciding factor in where he stood up behind a white supremacist might not even have been the blacks that the Democrats brought in or the fact that he said he was going to work with black people and he got in there and didn't. It might have come down to something as as tragic as two hundred and twelve dollars. Mm. <laughs> so, so don't get caught up in Tim Scott. We got work to do. And that's where we are. That's what we're doing. So yep. I you listen, at the end of the day, there's a lot of time wasted uh, <laughs> pontificating, a lot of right. time wasted uh, giving opinions when it, at the end of the day, we've got to roll up our sleeves. We gotta work right. That's All right. right. Thank you for that. Uh, and I want to bring in, we got uh, two people. First, um, Aya, who is in Texas. I think she's from Nigeria. Unmute. Um, oh, wow. You talk about libraries. There's a library being built, and part of the work that we're doing here is with global citizens. We are we are not pledging allegiance to America. We are pledging allegiance to our global citizenship. That's right. And wherever we are in the world, we're going to participate in making sure life is good for right. all people. 
So uh, I is doing some work uh, here, but for, for Africa, for people in Nigeria, for children in Nigeria. So I want her to come in and talk a little bit about what she's doing. And welcome. Welcome to look. That's my long look. We know each other for so long that you would not believe that either of us is as old as we are. Who, but who that's sister, no, that's that's sister right there. Now nah, she's a citizen of the world. I'm so happy to see you, my friend. Well, Aya. Thank Where <laughs> thank are you, you Dr. Carr, and thank you, Professor Hunter. Really, this is an what? honor. Is that the crew I, behind you? Yeah, I want to just shout out. We are at the Youth Backyard Garden Initiative, and that's Miss Rhonda, who is the brain behind it all. Did we I meet Miss Rhonda when I was there in Colleen? Yes, you did meet Miss Rhonda. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Look yeah. at Kenna and Adam. I can What's going on, man? What's Hello. The, that, who is that and between you, man? Who is that between you? Alan. What's up, Alan? Hey, y'all masking up. You ain't got to wear no mask in Texas. Oh, I'm sorry. Y'all got common sense. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Aya. Hey, for those who don't know, uh, Aya Anelli is an incredible, I mean, she's a lawyer, scholar. Uh, we went to school at Ohio State back in the day, day, when we was tearing up the whole campus. And then she kept tearing it up after we left and went to Philly. So, but you were just doing some incredible work. And I heard about this project. You are, you, you, you're trying to get together some educational material for the folk at home, home, right? She, tell, tell, talk to us. What's going on? Yes. Yeah, so um, my family comes from a part of Nigeria called Opobo, Opobo town um, that actually just celebrated 150 years, I believe, after moving wow. from Bonnie. But wow. I was fortunate enough to be summoned back home right before the <laughs> pandemic last year. Um, seriously, summoned back home by my grandfather who transitioned long before I was born. And when I got back um, to Opopo, realized that in a community with over a thousand school-age um, children, we did not have a single library. The schools were dilapidated, um, rain coming in through the roof, all of those pieces. And so we got some people together. We fixed the roof. We fixed ceiling tiles. We put some additional furniture in some of the schools. But our focus right now is on creating this library. So we've identified... Um, a location for it, um, a building, a couple of rooms that are going to be donated to us, at least temporarily. And the goal is to collect books for children, really pre-K through 12th grade, that are African-centered. Mm. And um, we've identified a retired teacher who's going to serve as our librarian and also head up our reading efforts. But in conjunction we're also going to be revitalizing certain aspects of the culture in Opobo that has been dying off. And that's our folk stories, our, our folk tales. Um, really? When I was a kid, we used to sit around and they, the elders would tell us these stories. And I went back home and they're like, we don't do it anymore. And a lot of the elders who know the stories are dying off. And so these are things we're going to incorporate into the library. So at this point, we are um, raising money, collecting books. Um, we're going to be shipping the books in June from Houston to Lagos. And our connections in Lagos will pick it up. I will go to Nigeria in September, COVID willing, and um, yeah. transport the books from Lagos to Opobo and get everything set up and hopefully um, serve this community. So, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, the narratives, uh, which we're starting to collect, we're about to launch a whole genealogy uh, section. Can you hear me? You're, you're frozen. Am I frozen? Oh, no. Okay, no, now you're moving. We, we're all together, I think. 
All right. She couldn't see us, okay. but you were pros. Go ahead, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. So we're doing this narrative, a whole genealogy, how to yeah. talk to your elders, how to extract those stories. So we're going to be kicking that off next month, which is in, in line with what you're doing in June. Where do we send the books? Is there, yeah. is there a website yeah. that we can go to? Because this is powerful. And I'm also thinking, I don't know, Aya, um, we were talking about doing a Dr. Carr library somewhere. Oh, <laughs> I know, and he's re he's resistant to it because he doesn't want his name on it. But I'm thinking this could be the perfect launch for a Dr. Greg Carr library. And not yes, and I, I don't care well, if you don't like it, Dr. Carr. I'm maybe a, I'm a, a, maybe a network. We maybe a network. I am, I am in total agreement. Okay, thank no, you. No, thank no, you. No, no, reason, no, reason I say that. No reason I say that, Aya, is because and everybody's listening. This project, how you fashioned it out of a long arc of intellectual work that started there long before colonialism and the idea that you're 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 helping young people develop the capacity to absorb the history the mouth to ear history and so not just learn reading and writing but learn it in connection to that to me wherever all this stuff ends up and it is going to be very yes absolutely i'm you know i am definitely for institution building we need networks because yeah. even even in your um i um your home country. And it's funny because like I say, she, she spent time as a child between Nigeria and United States. So she really, I consider I both Nigerian and, and, and American in that sense. The, um, in Suka, there was a brother named William Leo Hansberry who took, he was on faculty at Howard for a number of years and then, you know, got the HBCU crossover, which they do to a lot of people like that. And he took all his stuff and his things are at the university at Insuka in Nigeria. It's the William Leo Hansberry library in part because Hansberry was a champion of Pan-Africanism. He was one of the first people, there she goes, there. And so that just the idea that now we wouldn't need to transfer all, everything any particular place. What we can do though, it seems to me is in this specific instance, um, because that library in Port Harcourt is so important. That, that library in Opobo, which has its own unique history. I know some of the things I has been working on collecting that history because many of our people ended up here. In fact, people, you say that um, Martin Luther King was Igbo. That's what the Igbo was claimed when, you know, he said, but my point is this, that library can and must and should be built and she's not going to stop. So it's going to be built. Right. We gotta, we gotta what, I'm, what I'm asking, I think is, um, first of all, I know, I know the answer to this. Do you have books that you can donate? Number one. Oh. Oh yeah, of course. And then yeah, I mean, I, I will, I will get books and send. That's what I, yeah. So, so like Arthur Schomburg gave his some of his collection to the Harlem Library, you know, that we now know as the Schomburg. I'm just saying there's an opportunity here for Dr. Carr to preserve the fifty thousand books you have in storage and the fifty thousand right. leather books you got behind you <laughs> to, to to help. And then the the, the family here, all of the family that's we can all ship our spare books. I got yep. a bunch. I yes. know I know there are people watching that have a bunch. Yes. To to Texas in June so that we can get that in Legos. And then field trip. Field trip. Once I uh, is she here? She back. Field back. trip. We go and we christen and and you know open oh, the yeah. to Rona, Rona bye bye. You know, yeah. we, you know. Okay, because I hear feedback. So, uh, are you in a, are you in agreement with this? You know, I, uh, Who you about me? No, I am. Uh, 
Yeah, that's what I asked. All right, yeah, because you know I'm in agreement. Okay, all right. So I'm, in, we... I'm in agreement, and we're ready to host you, you all for a field trip. Absolutely. Yeah. Class trip, class trip, class trip. Yeah, class trip to Nigeria. Right. That's what so, I'm talking about. So let's do this. Let's do this. You give me the link uh, to where people should send it. I'll drop it in the description here. Ooh. I'll put it out on social media. Yeah. We'll get that going. Uh, it's going to be Dr. Greg Carr Library in Nigeria. Field trip. Yeah. Field trip to christen it. Now you, got, you got a name for the elders there. We, we'll be affiliated. We're all going to be okay. affiliated. All right. We'll, we'll talk about that off mic. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, so yeah. you know, we got we to gotta, we gotta have people. In other words, whoever, whatever plantation the Scotch-Irish cars that we ran out from, the last thing I want to do is put that name somewhere oh. we got taken from. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I have no... I have no connection. Let me, let me, say, let me say this. Uh, I'm, I'll be Karen Hunter till the day I close my eyes. And that name means something sure. to me. My parents put energy into it. I don't give a damn about the Scott Irish. Mine too. Mine too. You have made this name into something. Whoever came before you with that name. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Dr. Great Carr means something. But That's you know, I would, I would say this is interesting because Martin Delaney didn't change his name. You're absolutely right. We didn't charge our names. The thing about it is, and, and I'll be honest with you, maybe that's one we should we should talk about as well. Naming is so important. And you're right. These names we have, our ancestors either took or took and remixed. You're absolutely right. At the same time, there is this deep question. That's that. That's the ways of knowing category. When we ask how people make sense of the reality, the names that African people created were very deeply connected. There's, there are no African names at African languages without a meaning, a translation. Now, I'm saying that to say there, and there's a debate, and we should have the conversation. We should. No, the whole thing and, and bring Aya. Aya, what does your name mean? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yes, please. Oh, God, I don't think I can get back on. Yes, oh, you are. You're on now. You're on. What she? What does your name mean? Now we oh, can't you're hear you. You're, you're muted. Muted. Mute. Muted. Stop. Unmute. Okay. Unmute. There you go. There you My go. My fool. <laughs> My full name is Ayayi, and it means child of God. Okay. All right. So. Uh -huh. See? All right. Now, Greg means watchman or something. But Kimathi, which is my Kikuyu name, which I got many years ago, the great Kwame Leo Lillard out of Nashville, who's now an ancestor. They did Kwanzaa for many years. My mother was one of four queen mothers in Nashville and when they, they initiated her. I got the name Kimathi back in 1987. It's a Kikuyu name, and it means uh, seeker or searcher and provider so that name actually kwame did convened us but it was a yoruba priestess hoisey nelson who was there in the naming ceremony and i had just done undergrad i was in my first after my first year of law school actually midway through and when we were at tennessee state we raised hell like Iowa was there at ohio state when we this was after the rodney king verdict they snatched down the american flag burned the flag had 10 demands took it to the president of ohio state held him hostage in a meeting two weeks later and got most of that stuff so if you're in columbus if you go to ohio state and you walk into black culture center and you see where it is now my man larry williamson runs that center you thank aya you thank all of us and those africans in fact our organization was called action africans committed to uh at women act Af africans committed to improving our nation but we but in undergrad we took on oh my god the governor of the state of tennessee ultimately and so the sister named me that name which is not a name i use a lot i don't use that name in the social structure right so in right. other words but in the governance if somebody come up calling me and say hey kimothy i know you from the governance structure right. <laughs> in other words i know who we are and, and so 
you're gonna be Karen Hunter, and you made yeah, that name. Karen answer. Hunter means uh, I wish you would. Uh, no question. I, I wish would. you would. I wish you would. <laughs> and if you speak Ebonics, you know what that means. But if you don't speak Ebonics, you might actually try it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, okay, so I we got you. We dropped in the chat. I'm gonna drop it on my social media as well and in the description of this video on YouTube. Uh, housekeeping there's gonna come a point where all of these videos will not be available. I know a lot of you are very, you know, you come back, you know, you you, you may watch it a week later, you come back and you may watch it two or three times. We have created a whole space, a community, a whole space in narrative where that's gonna happen. All right, so it'll be there forever. And we own and control that. We don't own and control this space. And as you've just seen Google and uh, Roku, they fighting. And we don't care about them fighting. Mm. Y'all do what y'all do. We gonna do what we do, which is why we're creating these spaces where it won't matter. That's right. So. That's right. And in fact, also books, books, since we're talking books, uh, we just, uh, you and I did Souls of Black Folk. We're gonna have a club discussion uh the 20 the third week of may live in narrative we will not be here in class we're going to be in narrative live talking about souls of black folk and what wb du bois wanted to do with 10 areas that impact black people over 10 years for a hundred year plan we're going to kick that off uh the third week live in narrative he and i that's going to be our in class it won't be here it'll be there so if you're not there you won't be there to do that so Get over there. You need to get your get get up some resources. You know, we just need to figure that out because access is 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 you know, but 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 let's always remember as you say. So people are donating classes. So if you really can't afford it, you know, there's the donation. We need to find that out and meet you where you are because again, we have to create this space, which is why you know, shout out again to Michael Harriet for giving the idea. Thank you, brother. most, Most collective thinking, well. Most collective thinking projects are political projects. And that's very important to understand. So what narrative is doing is creating a space where we can engage in those political projects free from any sense of, you know, restriction. And also you got to protect it. You got to create some pristine space. That's very important. And so this isn't um, a retreat to exclusivity for exclusivity. No, this is about us building something we have that we can continue to work. And this this is emerged organic. The only way it's only possible because of everybody who has been coming. So so you know we have to um we've got to we, we we have to be together. And you know what happens when you don't have strong institutions? That's how you end up with a Tim Scott. Or that's how you end up with a Martin Delaney getting jammed up at the at near the end of a very long and very productive life and then feel like he got to make a political compromise. That's how you end up with somebody cut out there who has been arguing as Delaney did his whole life. We got to build independent power. But here you are in the 1870s and we haven't been able to do it because we're being beat up from the social structure and inside the governance structure. We haven't developed the momentum yet. And so he's got to make a margin call to try to get black power in Tim. Uh, Scott's mind, I'm sure if he were in here right now, he'd be like, I am for, I'm trying to get black power. Yeah, bro, but you don't have a momentum of memory, not even in your home state. And if you do know, then you've made the decision that we can't win. So mm. you've decided that you, if you can get in there, somehow you're going to turn around and introduce a bill like this alleged 
uh, criminal uh, justice reform bill that gives in, that incentivizes stopping chokeholds, that incentivizes uh, body cams. No, you, sir, are a tool of white nationalism. There's no way individuals don't beat institutions. I don't care whether it's Vice President Kamala Harris or whether it's Senator Tim Scott. We have to have independent institutions. And what we're building in narrative is an independent institution. So I just wanted to say that because that's very important. <laughs> it's very important. All right. Let's bring Michael in. Michael hey, in North hey, Carolina, just outside of Asheville. Welcome. Ah, how are you, hey, brother? Dr. Carr and Professor. Yeah. Carr. How are you, man? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm doing What's going well. on? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, I've been hearing a lot of um, the term governance. Repeated yes. a couple, you know, several times on this uh, education weekend, mm -hmm. and I've been wondering what is our, uh, who is going to represent us as African American community to present our demands to the decision makers of this country. Hmm. Oh, I love that screensaver, by the way, brother Ali. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying who actually, I guess, is a good point of departure when we think about it. Are you mean in terms of electoral politics? Michael. Um I would say all together. Okay. All right. All together. Then, then, then go ahead. I was just saying you've got people that are quote unquote respected, as you said, Michael Jordan's people that athletes. You have people that have a image, have a presence that are known to society, but I don't think they speak for the diaspora. There you go. Okay, good. This is actually good. Let's 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 let's, 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 let's Oh, no, please, please, Professor Hunter, go right ahead. Thank you for that, Michael, because I think we've had an off-mic conversation about this. Yes, we have. A lot, actually. Um, because, and, and I asked you, how do we get here to a point where anybody with a platform can speak on behalf of Black people and folk follow them? Anybody with, uh, you know, million-plus followers can go and meet with the president with no, with no memory, no knowledge, no no institutional knowledge, no background, no ancestry, you know, um, grounding and speak on behalf of black people. Who gets to determine that? And we've had this conversation. So, yeah. you know, what Michael's asking is, I, I think it's something we should all ask, you know, who put that person in a position to speak for us? Why is this person on television 24-7 or uh, always the go-to person? Who determined that this is the person that's going to have the, the moment to have a statement about what this means to us? That's, uh, and we have had this conversation off mic. And I want to say thank you, Michael, for the question that we've constantly been asking ourselves. And I want, again, to bring us, well, we never leave it, but to remind us of those, that Africana studies framework. Well, we, we call it the, the six conceptual categories. Michael, the the observation, the question you raise and Professor Hunter, the observation you just made in terms of asking how we get to that, where where that happens, that really is about those first two categories. Who are African people to each other? Who are African people to other people? The governance structure and the social structure. When we start talking about governance, when we ask ourselves, who are we to each other? We also have to ask, as we're asking that question and trying to answer it, what makes us gravitate towards certain people? So this is a this is a this is a this is a, a very important point. And this is why in narrative we have time to stretch out and really get into this. Because again, this is based on all, now over 20 years of thinking through these categories and then bringing them to life about 15 years ago. Our governance 
conversations, who we are to each other, are never, are never independent of the larger social context we live in. So thinking about governance and social structure as two separate categories only allows us the space to think about how we exist in the social structure because it's always around us. Why is that important? And let's be very concrete about this. Why do we gravitate toward athletes and celebrities? Because the social structure that we were brought into, this field of violence called enslavement and everything that has happened in the quote unquote afterlives of enslavement, to use a phrase that's very popular these days, oriented how we view each other, tried to orient how we view each other as an extension of how we were viewed by other people. So the Kentucky Derby is a great example. The jockeys were not considered as important as the horses, but the jockeys became, some of them became celebrities, even though they were more anonymous. When you see the history of boxing, you know, my friend, brother Gerald Horn just wrote a book on boxing, right? Where do these fist fights come from? Well, you have the tradition in Europe, but however, when you translate that tradition into the settler colonies called the United States, then you have white people matching up black people to run, race each other, to fight each other bare knuckle. And so those people are valued for their athletic, their physical prowess. That doesn't mean that we didn't value athletic prowess pre prior to enslavement. Of course we did. I mean, when you read Things Fall Apart, for example, Okonkwo was a major wrestler. He was a very, you know, good rat. In fact, um, you know, I as homies, the, the Igbo writer, um, uh, Chino Achebe writing that anyway. So it's not that, but here's the problem. In a social structure, where people of African descent are oriented toward what they what their value is outside of our community. You get athletes, you get singers and dancers. These are the things we want from you. And so slowly, when we don't have our own institutions to ground our children and subsequent generations and who we should be and who we are to each other, you will see an imbalance in that valuation. Let me be very specific about that. Coming out of enslavement, as we began to form educational institutions, formal education institutions, read Carl G. Woodson's book, The Education of the Negro, prior to 1861, Du Bois's early work, some of this, I mean, a lot of other stuff, right? What you see is that you could be a great athlete in the segregated schools, but you could also be a great scholar. And often they were the same person. Excellence was considered the standard for everyone. Even if everyone didn't reach it, the expectation was even the floor would have a minimum level of, uh, of competence. So we're all gonna rise together. So when you see a Paul Robeson, he's not really an outlier. He's a great football player, great you know uh, baseball player, track guy, and a top scholar. These things, he, he just happened to be so much better than everybody at all those things that he rises to the level of icon. And then he's an entertainer. So he's a better singer, he's a better actor, and he becomes a global star until his politics knock him out of the firmament. By then, the 1940s and 50s, really the late 40s, what you've seen is the, the, the social structure begins to cherry pick out of black life as the technology uh, increasingly makes, quote unquote, what we would call now platform available. So, I mean, in other words, like a drug in your vein, 
instantaneous fame as opposed to when you had to read about people in the newspaper or you heard about them legend now you got you move from the telegraph to the telephone you move to motion pictures you move to radio then to television so a jesse owens in 1936 or a joe lewis in 1930s and 40s who you have to listen to on the radio now you can see them on tv in the 1950s like a sugar ray robinson and athletes who are important to the social structure entertainers who are important to the social structure which is all really about capitalism in many ways as it relates to and intertwines with race, they become promoted as spokespeople for the race. The case of Paul Robeson is fascinating because his popularity makes him extremely dangerous. He is not Dr. Du Bois. He is not Shirley Graham Du Bois. He's a guy who's a movie star, who's a theater guy, who's beloved all over the world. So when he comes out for peace, they got to body this guy. Why? Because they might listen to him. So who do they get? They go get Jack Roosevelt Robinson and they try to get him to come to Congress and basically body Paul Robeson. He doesn't quite do that and he lives to regret what he did do. But the point is, by then, Robinson, who college educated, officer in the military, athlete, he is going to be the threshold to a new iteration of black leaders who for whom celebrity is important but there are still independent institutions whether it be the black church which produces the adam clayton powell who's able to get elected to congress from a black district in harlem whether it be the black church and the black schools which produce a coretta a scott and a martin luther king who are able to emerge out of black institutions whether it be um, uh, uh, a Shaw University and Virginia, out of which comes an Ella Jo Baker, or the Sea Islands of South Carolina, out of which comes a Septima Clark. These are black institutions. Uh, a guy out of New Orleans who ends up going to school and then coming through black institutions, Howard, an Andrew Young who still walks the earth. These institutions produce black leaders who are still in the governance structure and in this inflection point in American history, when the United States can no longer afford to be seen by the world as just beaten up out of black people, as Gerald Horn says, they negotiate a truce in the 19, the late 1950s up through the 60s. Gerald calls it the, the, uh, the compromise of 1954, because he says when you read Brown versus Board of Education, you're not looking at a country, a social structure that saying, OK, black people, now we're going to educate y'all. Now, what they're saying is the Russians. The Chinese, they around here, all these African countries coming out of uh, colonialism, Caribbean breaking out, Latin America, and the Chinese and the Russians going around saying, y'all can't trust the United States. Look how they do black people. So the compromise is we will create, we will loosen apartheid. But when we loosen apartheid, it ain't going to be so the great flood of y'all can come washing in and get education. We'll get the black elites, that small group, and we'll hold you up to the world as see we making progress and now our problem is here where we are now we back map that social structure objective in our curriculum and instruction and we still holding these individual blacks out of the black elite up as if somehow that progress is a is a is a proxy for the progress of the group now how does that relate to athletes when we see uh michael screensaver there in the back we see muhammad ali out of louisville kentucky Right, police athletically giving his boxing gloves where he and his brother Rachman and I mean cats come out of there, right? And these white businessmen get together just like they may have gotten together on the plantation and say, We're gonna invest in this boy because why he won the gold medal in the Olympics in 1960. He's gonna be the champion. Let's back him so we can get this money. And but Ali, however, Ali poses another problem, a generation after Jack Roosevelt Robinson. 
when Ali coming out of uh, you know one night in Miami, right? By the time Ali ascends to the heavyweight championship of the world, he'd been talking because he was down there training in Florida, and you really don't see it, although it's gestured toward in one night in Miami. These cats from the Nation of Islam. Now he gets pulled in. Why? That's a black institution. Next, you know, he's listening. He's agreeing. He remembers the racism. He know what he did. He threw his gold medal in the Louisville River. He know, yeah. Nah. Next thing you know, I am Muhammad Ali. And he shows up in a kufi with the star in the crescent, Elijah Muhammad there, because Malcolm has recruited him into the nation, even as his own individual relationship with the nation is fracturing and falling apart. Remember now, these are these are black institutions. And I'm not even saying whether they're good or bad black institutions. Check out the incredible work that Forrest Whitaker and Ensemble are doing in Godfather of Harlem. These are black institutions interacting at a moment when the United States, the social structure can't afford to continue to be openly racist. So they create a little safety valve for the black elite. Meanwhile, the masses of black people still taking an ass whipping. What did the black elite do with that safety valve? They are able through combining with the masses of black people, this is Cedric Robinson, Black Movements in America, read particularly chapters five and six, they converge, the interests converge, and that's what you call the civil rights movement. See, that's what you call civil the Montgomery bus boycott, people in the streets, then SNCC gets involved, 1960, the National Student Movement, North Carolina, Student, the people start getting involved, but on the rocket thrust of the people, that tiny black elite are pressing forward with and negotiating in the courts. That's in the BCP strategy and uh, in, in, in the streets and getting policy done. So you get the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 64, Fair Housing Act. And then, OK, then the long retreat as the forces of white nationalism say, hey, 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 hey that's enough. What ends up happening is by 1968, this mass movement. It's become difficult to manage for this social structure because they're on the verge of transformation. Read any stuff or talk to anybody who was alive and adult or near an adult during that period. And they will tell you that period in the late 60s, it looked like everything was about to change. It wasn't just the United States. We'll talk about 1968 in global context another time. We think this whole thing getting ready to change. People could feel it. The Black Studies Movement, the Black Power Movement, all this stuff is here. Ali is the heavyweight champion. He got the whole attention of the whole world. He's a Muslim. He ain't just a Muslim. He with the Nation of Islam. And y'all know that Negroes can't talk about Mr. Farrakhan spoke at DMX funeral and somebody said good. They came for him. He got out and apologized. <laughs> <laughs> you can't talk about Louis Farrakhan today. You know what I'm saying? And don't, and look, we're in the governance category now. So don't try to make this about what Farrakhan did or didn't do. That's a serious conversation we need to have with. No, this is about the social structure. Say, y'all ain't allowed to put nation of Islam in a phrase. Do you understand that? So go back to 1968 when Ali is not only putting it in a phrase, he says, as a minister of Allah, I'm not going to Vietnam. Wait, 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 what? Y'all get mad at LeBron James for saying that the cop, you know what? <laughs> no, I take it back. Muhammad Ali, the champion of the world, he's not the NBA champion of the United States. He's the champion of the whole world in a sport where it's two people in the ring and the referee might be trying to cheat against you. So your best bet is just knock him the F out. In other words, this is the guy in the world and he's known all over the world. His name is Muhammad Ali. So he's not going to Vietnam. So then what you have is, in my mind, the last clear convergence of celebrity and politics. My friend Dave Zirin. I mean, you, you, you've written about, I mean, so many people have written about this, right? And Ali to the day he drew his last breath. See, the social structure tried to reimagine Ali after he got sick. Mm -hmm. But when you talk to people like uh, my student now at Howard, who my God, this boy going to his junior year. I remember when he day walked on campus. 
um, Sean Ali Mickens, who's in the Ali family. He said, this man, to the day he drew his last breath, he never stopped being that Muhammad Ali. But then when he got sick, you know, you stick him out there with the Olympic torch in his hands with a little bit of tremor in his hand, lighting the... And then y'all want to mail. He was an ambassador of peace and Bill Clinton and Billy Crystal speaking at the funeral and don't realize that the one y'all saw on TV the day before when they sat in the Islamic tradition, Farrakhan was there and he was at the funeral. But guess what? The family of Muhammad Ali, for whatever reasons, they didn't like the family of Aretha Franklin who left instructions. That's why Bill Clinton ass was sitting next to Louis Farrakhan on that stage in Detroit because Aretha Franklin didn't play that. But then again, just wait a couple of years, you can make a movie and then people can watch the damn movie and think they know something about Aretha Franklin. Don't do that. But the point is that 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 combination of athletic and celebrity, Ali probably marks the high watermark. And then finally to switch it over to entertainers, that period of the late 60s through the 70s with Aretha Franklin, with Marvin Gaye, with Curtis Mayfield, with Nina Simone, who bridges all the way across from the 50s into the 70s and 80s. Those people, even the, I mean, the, the, the ensemble groups, when y'all saw that Versus with the OJs and Earth, Wind and Fire, we all know we all know all them songs. And then if you know their catalog, you know that there's so much politics. The OJ, Ship Ahoy. Go look at Philadelphia International. One of my students now, graduate student from Philly, Angela Carter, doing her graduate work on this. The politics of Philadelphia International. I mean, Gamble and Huff. When you start looking at that, that kind of collision of celebrity, when you put sorry, not sorry in the long arc of movement and memory, it doesn't measure up. I'm sorry. Bling is not the objective of content liberation. Y'all go listen. When the man, you know, mm, 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 don't even get me started. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not even gonna go there because, of course, many people would say the 70s is the high water mark of that. And so, what we have now, we got ball players, we got singers, we got athletes, and we are at another moment when yeah. we they can seize this, but what do they not have anymore? which is why I'm so glad to see Deion Sanders at Jackson State. I'm glad to see Eddie George at Tennessee State. What they didn't and don't have is independent black institutions with that level of expectation that we had the sense enough to have during Jim Crow American apartheid that began to steadily erode as this country made a truce with the black elite. And now people think that I got accepted to Harvard. I actually got the book award from so-and-so. Oh no, that's cool. But Where's your award? And then when they snatched the rug out from you, out from under you at the Academy Awards, you cry crocodile tears. No, because they they succeeded. <laughs> and then they and then they tried out Lil Nas X or some other instant celebrity and say, this your spokesperson. That is a social structure creation, which is why every time I, I, I will really end with this. Did you know what I love about it? We know that's we know they're not our spokespeople. You know how we know? Because when DMX, who is not a leader who was a gifted wordsmith, musician, artist, whatever you want to call, call him, when DMX passes and 100,000 motorcycles or how many Rough Riders had as they put him on the back of that monster truck and drove him in. Okay, when you get there, who gets applause when he, when he, when he comes on the screen from Chicago? Farrakhan. See, the thing about the governance structure is it rarely shows itself to the social structure. But here's the problem. The social structure knows that. The social structure knows that you ain't hiding nothing from nobody. You ain't hiding nothing from nobody. We we know ball players not our leaders. We know they're not our leaders, but we don't always tell that to people, and we always we don't always act like it either, which is the problem for young people. Which is why we have to assess our media too. No question. All right. Uh, 
to be continued next <laughs> next week and yeah. And narrative, we got a lot of people that we're uh, having conversations about. We're going to flesh out. We're going to probably do a whole thing on jockeys at one point because that's the Ooh. place we're going to have these conversations about, you know, our history. And and as I mentioned in the chat, we're building this thing one brick at a time. So uh, I'm taking my time with this. If it takes 20 years to get all of the things and all of the people to come together with their with their art, their documentaries, we're going to do a whole thing on music. There's going to be a section on there. The farming thing is taking off. When we get, uh, we just had our first conversation with uh, Mario Beatty. Thank you for the introduction. So we're going to be learning some hieroglyphs. Yes. So all of that uh, is happening because you guys uh, demanded it, not maybe verbally. Maybe you didn't know you demanded it, but you did. And this is the time where I think the window is very, I've said this many times, we had a very short window to break this. Very short window before we go back to, to be in a necessize and 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 right. you know, uh, put to sleep. That's uh, right. We got very. Ooh. Okay, so, I, I don't. Want, I know we got. I know we get ready to wrap it up. That's all right. right. That's no, all right. You 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 had that written off. No, like, no, no, no. I want, no, I want to say this because what you just said is so important and resonant. Everything you said, but that right there, when Breonna Taylor was was killed, when George Floyd was killed, people got in the street in the middle of a plague, a pandemic. So if you understand the social structure, then you could have predicted what happened next. They sprung into action. Corporate America, government, let us bring in advisors. Let us bring in consultants because the watchword of staying in power for a racist social structure is diversity. It is the politics of demographics. It's having a Tim Scott so that you can use that as a fig leaf to cover. It's lying to a Martin Delaney so you can, and then sending the four people from the Democratic Party to the legislature or, or nominating them on a slate for the Democratic Party. So Wade Hampton, the racist, can get in. In other words, that's diversity. But what ends up happening is that these individuals affiliated with institutions that we don't control and own are in there trying to fight and do their best. This isn't a criticism of those individuals. Just like Martin Delaney was trying to do his best, so-and-so fill in the blank. Is trying to do the best, except individuals don't be institutions. Now, what you just said, Prof, is so important because this was the time when everybody was sitting at the house, and so everybody would come in. We were going, we would tape and put it up. And he said, "Well, let's go live a little bit," and then we start going live every week. People come, people still coming, and so you took that moment to say, "This is a small window. This is the moment we can build the thing." Because the individuals don't be institutions. And sure enough, here we are in May 2021. And it's not like last summer didn't happen. But we back to, we're going to get nominated for an award. We back to, well, the playoffs are coming. Uh, Is LeBron going to get back in time? Oh, good. They signed Andre Drummond. Okay, we got to bet. We're back to, well, I mean. Meanwhile, in that short window, what did you, what were you able to do? Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Boom. Like my man, Josiah Henson getting to Dawn, Ontario, like Harriet Tubman building out a place, like Sojourner Truth going to Battle Creek, Michigan. Here's the property we're going to build over here. You were able to build it. And now that we got a spot, hey, y'all, let's run. Let's run. Let's run. Because guess what? The surest way to get reparations, those of you reparations advocates, is you negotiate from a position of strength. You don't get reparations by coming and saying, please, they don't subscribe to the higher moral standard. And by they, I don't mean individual white people. I mean a system that was literally set up in a way to do something to you that 
you would never get reparations for unless the cost of not getting reparations is too high. And that can happen when you have independent institutions. So y'all sign up for narrative. You got to. You absolutely have to do that. Thank you. Thank you. No. I love you so much. Uh, uh, and I want to thank everybody from all over and all of the people that are supporting Aya. I uh, can't wait to get off the phone, uh, off this uh, call yeah, yeah. so that we can really get busy and set that in, in motion. And, and uh, there are a couple of trips in Africa we have to take with folk. Uh, we got to get rid of this Rona. So uh, Rona got to go. So y'all do what y'all got to do. I saw that conversation you had with Dr. Uh, Dr. Amin, uh, Sister Sunyata. That was very powerful. Listen, y'all need to watch that. She changed my whole. Let me tell you, I was like, mm, I don't know, but then she was like, everybody in here is vaccinated. I was like, what? You're a naturopath and a witch. How about a whole witch? And I'm like, she got vaccinated. Okay, all right. Let me rethink this. And and then and then it's like we got to travel. We got to go places. I, I want to see the pyramids and I want to go do the do the things. And I don't want to be trapped in my house because they don't care. They're going to be out without a mask, breathing on all of y'all. So, How about that? And that's on the front page. That's actually on the front page of today's Financial Times. They're already putting the travel restrictions in. You're going to need that little card to go a whole lot of places. So get ahead of this. Yeah. Uh, I've been invited to Sierra Leone to get uh, citizenship. So, And that's in November. Ooh. I can do the math on that, too. I'm like, I got Gotta be able to move get like that, you get, that, get that passport. Passport, that's right. Get that so passport. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, you. brother. You are a uh, national treasure, y'all. Definitely. The real treasures are folks. In fact, a, a couple of new books I've been reading. This is my man, uh, uh, Burnett Gallman, another South Carolinian, Sankofa University. This is his book. He's doing a hell of a job down there. You know, this is Mike's people. Remember, he said Mike and his father knew he This is a great book. He's talking about African-centered history and culture. I've been reading that. And then my homie, uh, the great uh, Leah Williams, Leah wrote the Williams, who's at Tennessee State. He has co-edited a book with Amy Thurber called I'll Take You There, exploring Nashville's social justice sites. So I've been reading this. I'm just I'm just mentioning these two books because these are at the top of my pile. I've been reading them and, and grading papers because this is our last week. Everybody graduating. Congratulations. It's wonderful. And now that you out of that ass out of the way, come on over here with us because we got some work that we need to do and we need all of y'all. This is why we're jailbreaking all that stuff. I love it. I love it. See you next Saturday. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. See you next Saturday. Love you. Love you too.